All right, and we are back to once again explore faith and pursue grace. I am Lee Grant. This is Kevin Pendergrass, and joining us once again is one of my absolute favorite guests that we have had on this program. Dr. Grant Testu joins us once again. Dr. Testu, how are you this evening, brother? I'm well. How are you, Dr. Grant? I am doing exceptionally well, a little tired. We did a obstacle course 5K Saturday, my wife and I, and I'm still feeling the effects of that. But other than that, life is grand. I'm a little sore, but that's nothing that a little uh, uh, electrolytes and ibuprofen won't help with. Um, but we're excited to have you back on, brother. Um, I always look forward to having you on. But after the last episode that we had you on for in which we discussed some of the genocide passages of the uh, Old Testament and we talked about viewing those through a Christocentric lens, we the conversation went in a direction in which we discussed how Jesus undoes that ethic and how there's a different approach that Jesus takes and a different track that Jesus takes that tends to undo a lot of that theology that justifies those genocide passages. And we had several of our listeners reach out to us with some really good follow-up questions and we were planning on having you back on sooner but life got in the way you were busy we were busy but hey we're able to make it happen now so welcome back we're thrilled to have you back bro yeah thank you again for having me we are thrilled to have you back on at as well we're really excited to get into this because this is one of those topics that's extremely interesting it is one of those topics that can really affect one's perspective on their faith. It can really challenge their perspective on faith, and it can be really problematic for a lot of people. Whenever you read those genocide passages, whenever you read what the instructions given to Israel were to, to go across the Jordan, to take over Canaan land, to you know get out there and kill them all, as Metallica says, it, it's, it's something that seems to fly in the face of that love your neighbor ethic that Jesus communicates and that Jesus exemplifies. And so there's a lot of tension between what we see reflected in the Old Testament versus what we see in the New. And some of our listeners didn't think we did a really a good enough job getting into that and resolving that tension, which is why we're getting back into this to ask some more uh, specific questions to that end and to hopefully answer those questions in a more satisfactory way. Yeah, and, and and these are good questions. When we're talking about a, to a topic such as this, this is probably going to be unfamiliar to a lot of our listeners, and it was unfamiliar to me. I didn't even know there was another way that we could understand these texts. I just thought you had to take them hook, line, and sinker. Don't really put your critical thinking cap on. To you know, don't don't think too hard about this. Just accept it. And when I started digging in a little bit more to literary devices and started studying how the a lot of the Jewish texts were written from, from their perspectives and more of the humanity of Scripture. I still believe it's inspired by God, of course, but there's a lot of humanity that's there. And, and started to understand there's a lot of different ways to, under, to, to look at these texts. But also, when you look at these texts in comparison with what Jesus taught, there does seem to be tension. And as Lee pointed out, some of our audience did not think that we really created that tension or showed there was tension. And so I'll go ahead and start with the first question that we received. And if you haven't listened to the first episode, please go and do that first, because this this episode, I'm not going to say it's not going to make any sense, but it's going to make a whole lot more sense to you 
if you've already listened to the first episode. So if you haven't, go back. I'm not sure what episode it is, but Lee, will we be able to include a link to that in the show notes so people can listen to that first if they haven't? Yes, Um, yes. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. So if you guys want to go back and listen to that now, if you haven't already, pause this podcast, pause this episode, go listen to the previous episode, and then pick up where you left off. And you'll be right as rain, and you'll know exactly (laughs) what we're talking about. Well, in that way, you know, you'll understand where these questions are coming from, because these questions are coming from people who did listen to the first episode. And these are, of course, as the episode is entitled, follow up to these genocide texts in the Old Testament. So the first question is this. While I enjoyed the podcast, you immediately jumped into assuming there is tension between the war text and the Old Testament and Jesus. I wish you would have spent more time explaining why you see tension between these two things. Is this just not the holiness of God at work? Judgment, punishment, and death are consistently seen throughout both the Old and New Testament. Romans chapter 11, verse 22 even speaks to the kindness and severity of God. Can you please take some time to explain why you believe the war texts somehow contradict Jesus' teachings and lifestyle? Yeah, um, and I will say uh, now, if not again during this podcast, I love these questions. Um, the thoughtfulness behind uh, the, each of the questions that you guys sent me. Um, so I'm, I'm pulling them up on my screen as well, just so that I can hopefully be reminded uh, to, to speak fully to it. You guys hold me accountable to that as well. You bet. Um, so, I mean, one of the, the biggest notes that I see coming out in this particular question is this focus on holiness in particular, which is why I love uh, this question. Um, we want to keep that part of the equation in mind for sure. Holiness, the holiness of God. Um, part of what um, we want to do in addressing that question, though, is to understand what do we even mean by holiness? Uh, anybody who has been in my classes or heard me speak uh, in a number of venues uh, could easily tell you I'm a fanboy of Rudolf Otto. Um, he was a, a German uh, uh a scholar of, uh, of religions, comparative religions, uh, early 20th century. And uh, his, his work that has meant the most to me had a great impact on uh, my own scholarship, but uh, I will also admit uh, a big impact on my faith was his book called The Idea of the Holy. Uh, and in that book, he posits as, as his thesis that Holiness has come to mean something in Jewish and Christian circles, uh, at least in the Western traditions largely, uh, meaning, you know, European, American cultures, uh, that it did not necessarily mean in its, in its origins. So holiness, uh, we often, many of us might, if, if pressed to answer the question, what is holiness, we might say, well, holiness is, is purity, it's cleanness, or um, uh, to be holy is to be virtuous, is to be righteous. Uh, and certainly you can, you can pull some scriptures uh, that might even evidence those two ideas, especially uh, Leviticus pops to mind, um, particularly when thinking about holiness seen as purity, as cleanness. Um, but Otto suggested in this book that <clears throat> the basic idea of holiness um, is not what is proper, what is right, what's clean, all of those uh, additional labels, but 
in its primal origins, holiness is the uncanny. It is mystery. Mystery, not like the modern mysteries that we, you know, some of us like to watch on TV uh, or see you know, binge stream. Uh, Where you but, figure it out at the end. Yeah, you figure it out at the end. And that's the difference, right? Because mystery for him is uh, means what, what resonates with many religious people at some level. We would say mystery is the mystery that's not to be solved. Mm -hmm. uh, it can't be. Um, the original meaning of uncanny, you know, uh, coming from German origins means uh, that you can never ken it. You can never know it. Uh, I'm so feeling no. another podcast coming on. Oh, with, man. <laughs> another episode. You. I, I, I yeah, mean, yeah. you know, there's, 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 yeah, I think, I think we're gonna have to have you come back on yeah. just to talk about the holiness <laughs> of God. This is, this is very intriguing. This is awesome. Yeah. I, I have, I have never heard of this before. Oh, yeah. And, and it made it, like I said, a big impression on me, both for my scholarship um, as well as uh, in my relationship with God. Um, just to to think about that, that suggestion, because for years, I mean, this this was a, a worm in my brain for the longest time, especially as a languages guy. I, I like to nail down definitions as best I yeah. can. But what was holy? Uh, it always seemed to evade me. It never felt satisfying. Some of the definitions I had been given, like set apart, you know, what do we even mean by that? Like my coffee cup is set apart from my pen. It's holy now. Now, so clearly we don't mean that, <laughs> you know, but we do our best with the limitations of language. But the, the whole point is holiness is a word that it admits within itself that our language is limited. And sometimes our silence is what better meets uh, the divine, you know, God's nature, which is inexpressible um, on our terms. So um, first, I just want to, uh, again, make sure that we understand that sense of holiness. And I do, I, I say that that is representative of the original meaning of the Hebrew kadosh, uh, which gets translated often as holy. Uh, or similarly, the Greek of the Greek New Testament, hagios, uh, is one example of a, a word for, for holy, uh, which has some of the same kind of meaning behind it. It's that inexpressible something. Uh, it's that something, uh, Otto in his book used the example of uh, Jacob, for example, waking up at uh, Beit El, Bethel, we know it as, uh, after that vision that he has of the, the stairway up to the heavens, and there is Yahweh uh, speaking to him at that location that he thought was just an ordinary place to lodge for the night. But when he wakes up, one of his first statements is, how dreadful this place is. <laughs> uh, it, it gives him the chills. Uh, so it's remarkable that, and, and we, his is just one example out of many, when, when we have encounters with, div, with divine, with God in God's awesome presence or mysterious presence, more than once we can pull examples. I know any, any of our listeners can uh, of of uh, encounters with the divine where uh, the observer is frightened. That's one of the initial knee-jerk reactions. Um, and it's not just a fear like one has, I'm thinking of a great rabbinic example. Um, in in um, one of the rabbinic writings, the conversation came up, why did Moses run from the snake um, uh, and yet he didn't run from the, the burning bush when he found out that this was Yahweh, the God of his ancestors. Uh, you know, wouldn't that make you run? You know, and, and so it was a little puzzle for the rabbis to solve. 
And uh, I love this rabbinic answer. And and uh, I wish I could remember exactly where, where this was. But um, the answer comes back. Well, he knew that he could run from a snake. But where can one run from God? <laughs> oh, yeah. So, I love it. You know, that's that's the idea of that. That holy, as Otto goes on to define it, it is a mystery that causes uh, trembling, but also fascinates. Uh, it draws us at the same time as it repels us. And uh, so what beautiful terms to think about the mystery of God in his, both in his sublime beauty, uh, all of the uh, attractive uh, bits of God's nature, his grace, and so forth, but also a terrifying, you know, and, and in some older English translations, right, you have a terrible, uh, the adjective used to refer to God, yeah. not in our modern sense of terrible as, as in of low value and bad. No, the original sense is that he causes terror. Yeah. Uh, so, 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 so what you're saying then is that some, that really this question starts mm-hmm. out with somewhat of a presupposition, perhaps, uh, of defining a certain way of understanding the word holy. And I know growing up, the word holy was kind of what you were saying. It was this, it was there. And we usually talked about it in context of being set apart or special. Um, but I had never really identified, even though I know that the Bible does speak to this idea of mystery, I never really knew the connotation and the connection with the word holy, specifically in the the Jewish scriptures. And so that's fascinating to just go ahead and see the presupposition that we may be bringing to the table to say, well, the holiness of God is this, 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 when in reality, it may not have been that at all. And perhaps wasn't uh, what we thought it was, especially depending upon how we're defining it, especially if we're defining it mm-hmm. as kind of encompassing God's wrath and, 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 and so, you know, severity, they included that in there as well uh, with Romans chapter 11, verse 22, kind of trying to just encompass all these ideas together into one, yeah. uh, which, well, which yeah. well, I was, was going to say, from my understanding, that's not really, really accurate. Yeah. I mean, we, with God's holiness, we ought to come ready to be surprised. That's the that's the whole point. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, I use instances with my students when I when I teach them about you know, uh, where to find examples of this kind of holiness in the text. Uh, one of my favorites is Acts 10, you know, where where Peter has uh, been going this prescribed route uh, of what he thinks it is to be this leader in the Lord's church. Uh, and, uh, and by this point in the narrative, it is strictly a Jewish church. Uh, you know, no, no Gentiles have come in yet. And then he gets smacked across the side of the head uh, by this vision from God saying, there's been a, a, a game change now. You know? And of course, what's his reaction? You know, this is the holy God. He, he, it seems pretty clear in the narrative. He knows this is God speaking to him. Uh, and uh, in this vision, telling him, get up, Peter, kill, eat. Uh, and what's before him except all these unclean animals, in addition, perhaps, to some clean ones. Uh, and so the holy God, if holiness means purity, it, you know, uh, or the way things have been, the status quo, mm-hmm. that doesn't line up because this is this is a game change. Uh, but if it's God's terms uh, and, and God is uncanny, then no explanation is needed for God. This is the very God who called Peter in the first place, now saying, I want you to go a different route. Uh, but notice uh, Peter's reaction is, 
no, Lord. <laughs> you know, uh, he tells God, no. I've never eaten um, anything unclean. <laughs> yeah, I've never eaten anything. And I tell my students, isn't that more of probably just a reflex? Yeah. Well, I don't think Peter has even th- thought that answer through. He's like, this is God you're talking to, buddy. Uh, <laughs> but it shows you it has been so ingrained in his makeup since childhood uh, to only eat kosher meats uh, that uh, he can't bring himself, even even knowing this is God telling him to do it. Yeah. Uh, and so sometimes God in the biblical narrative will tell his people to do something that registers as unclean, as outside of the norms that even seem to have come from God's command earlier. Uh, other great so, examples exist in the prophets like Amos uh, I um, spoke about to a group recently or, or Isaiah or Jeremiah. Think about what they say uh, regarding the religious rituals going on in the sanctuary dedicated to Yahweh. And as far as, as they're concerned, saying, thus saith the Lord, uh, Yahweh could, couldn't care less about what goes on by means of these prescribed rituals of sacrifices, offerings made to God. And yet, wait, but we go back to Torah, we go back to the Pentateuch. <laughs> Didn't the very same God command do these things? And yeah. so it's another gut punch because that's God's prerogative. God can do that. God is holy. Um, so, so, yeah. Well, I was just going to say to play devil's advocate for a minute. Mm-hmm. So, what if someone were to take that and go, well, uh, Dr. Test 2, does that not mean that we can just accept this mystery that God commanded the genocides and yet later on Jesus talked about love and we just. We we don't we can't understand that, but it's just the mystery of God, you know. And of course, no, there's no no one asked that. I'm just thinking in my own mind. Ooh, what yeah, if yeah. Some, what if someone tried to use that logic and say, well, is that not the very thing that people could accuse us of doing? Is mm-hmm. is trying to figure things out by saying this doesn't seem right, and and so perhaps we're not the ones accepting the mystery of how God could command uh, genocide, and yet. In, in the expression in person of Jesus teach something that seems completely opposite. You know, we just have to trust that's the mystery of God. What would your response be to something like that? Yeah. And, and I do want to point out uh, whoever asked this question, I, I think in the question itself, there is that note of recognizing holy as uh, beyond our understanding, you yeah. know? Um, so I do think it's more of the classic definition of holiness that comes out in that question. But, yeah, that's a perfect follow-up here. You know, um, if it's on God's terms, and who are we? What do we know in the greater scheme of things? Um, then can that not be God's prerogative uh, making a game change? Um, and on the one hand, you could very well say yes. Okay, so I want to I want to acknowledge that. Uh, at the same time, I also want to just point out a. a a problem that comes up with that kind of thinking. Uh, and that is that by that justification, and I can't remember if I've used this uh, before on the podcast with you guys. I know I've, I've just said it so many times in classes with my students. I say, well, think about a worshiper of Molech, right? Uh, Molech is just another name for the divine as far as those who worship Molech are concerned. Um, and, and so in their own vernacular, that, that's essentially another word for God. Um, and 
Molech de- demands child sacrifice, right? So, uh, well, the ways of Molech are mysterious to me. Who am I to question? So come along, son or daughter. And, <laughs> you know, uh, you know I-, I know that you don't like this, but uh, here we go. Um, and honestly, any number of cults have thrived on, on uh, people honestly abusing uh, others' beliefs in the uncanny nature of the divine. Who are we to know to question ultimately? And yet we've seen some terrible results, with, uh, at least with cult leaders uh, or with uh, um, the, the worship of Molech, uh, as spoken about in, in the biblical texts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so we want to be cautious here of saying, yes, on the one hand, the divine should very naturally transcend my understanding. On the, on the other side of this, uh, if you want to call it equation, is my own responsibility to, without <clears throat> all the voices out there claiming to be divine, uh, to be discerning with whatever instrumentation is within me, which I believe is God-given, call it conscience or (laughs) what have you, but but to discern between those voices and say, no, I think this one over here is from God, and that one over there, that sounds a little too suspiciously like petty uh, uh, human motives or or party-line motives. Uh, And of course, if it's partisan, it's not holistic enough. It's not large enough. To capture, to capture the divine who transcends all of our divisions. Well, and um, you just you just said that much more succinctly and eloquently than I would have put it. Because to me, at the root of this question, the, at the root of the question, there is a, and I don't mean this to denigrate the question asker, but there's a lack of perspective. And, and what I mean by that is, is they don't share the same perspective that I share or that Kevin shares or that even you share in seeing that there is at its root a conflict between what we see Jesus teach and what happened in the genocides in the Old Testament. In, in their minds, there isn't a conflict there, and they chalk it up to the goodness and severity of God. They see the goodness of God represented in the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ and the love of Jesus Christ, but they also see the severity of God represented with the judgment placed on the nations of Canaan, on the enemies of Israel, on the enemies of the kingdom. So they see both of those things working together without contradiction, but the problem that we get to is that we see God commanding the destruction of these people. We see the psalmist write in Psalm 137 about how wonderful it is to dash these little baby Babylonians against the rocks. And yet, on the other hand, you have Jesus saying, unless you can come to me as a little child, you can by no means inherit the kingdom of heaven. We, we see Jesus showing love to children and showing the ultimate love of being destroyed on the cross, of being killed, being murdered brutally on the cross without any retribution in his mind or in his heart. And that flies in the face of that motivation, of that um, motif that we see in the Old Testament of that destruction. So from even from a surface view, even without getting too deep into the discussion of God's holiness and defining what that is, in my mind, there is a conflict there and it's an obvious conflict there. Yeah. But 
so many times we use this idea of the uncanny nature of God or the holiness of God to smooth that over in an attempt to justify it. And like you said earlier, Kevin, baked into that is this presupposition of what God's holiness entails. And sometimes that does entail utter destruction. And it might. I think we need to be humble enough to recognize that that could be the case. But to me, at the root of the question, there is no conflict seen between what we see Jesus represent and the morality he represents and the ethic he represents with what we see illustrated in the actions of God's chosen people in the Old Testament. And to me, God's holiness, using that as a, I guess, a a tool to make all of it fit, for me, that doesn't work. And I know it doesn't work for other people as well. So in my mind, there's absolutely a conflict there. I mean, the vortex in my mind do contradict what Jesus discussed. It does contradict how Jesus lived his life and how Jesus instructs us to live our lives as well. Holiness of God at work or not, there is a tension there. At least in my mind, there is. Yeah, we went back in the first episode and even talked about how this tension has always existed, even in the early church. Um, the, some of the earliest church fathers, they had this same problem, that Jesus and his message and his lifestyle did not harmonize and was not consistent with go out and kill all your enemies, even the, the women, the children, those who are even nursing, those who have babies who are yet to be born, go out and destroy them, go out and wipe out everybody. Mm-hmm. And... This is something that Christians have always struggled with, trying to figure out what do we do with this? What are we to make of this? And very early on, most of them took an allegorical approach to these texts. I mean, they they weren't taking this as a literal, this is what happened. Whether we agree with that or not, my point is, is that they realized this this wasn't really consistent with the Jesus we know and love, the Jesus that was revealed uh, to us, uh, you know, through throughout history or in history, and that we have reserved in ancient texts. That just do, it doesn't re, this is not who Jesus is, and mm-hmm. I, I find it a bit disturbing myself, not the questioner at all, but myself. Um, how some people have no problem admitting that things such as divorce took place, uh, unlawful divorce, treacherous divorce took place um, under the Old Covenant throughout the Jewish times and, you know, quote unquote, the Old Testament we read about and all throughout this time period. And yet, you know, we have a problem with that and <laughs> say, oh, no, you know, no, Jesus wouldn't have accepted that because that, you know, Jesus allowed this for the hardness of their hearts. He allowed them to divorce for any reason, and he allowed divorce certificates to protect the woman and so on and so forth. And and we, we try to make that fit. And polygamy, we're like, well, I don't really think, you know, that was the cultural thing. I don't really, even though there were some laws in there that regulated it, I don't really think that God was was okay with that because that somehow affects us like in uh, mentally we're like that just doesn't sound right yeah oh yeah but the whole thing about killing innocent women and children yeah oh that's just god and that's his holiness <laughs> <laughs> wait a minute wait a minute if we're fine looking at some of these other topics and issues and saying well <clears throat> maybe these happened because that was their culture and they integrated some of these laws because that was what they thought they needed to do 
And we can do that with polygamy and divorce and a host of other issues. I mean, tons of issues we could talk about and be okay with it. Why can't we be okay using that same logic with something as grotesque as killing innocent people, specifically women and, and, and children, even those uh, uh, babies who were, were, were you know, young age, those who had even yet to be born? Why can't we not say, well, let's look at that and, and, and realize that was really never okay, that that was never fine. Mm-hmm. And when you read Jesus, when you study Jesus, I believe that Christianity is to find its ultimate expression and its guide, its compass, its direction in the person of Jesus Christ. And if that's the case, then Jesus himself paralleled have no pity with uh, show your mercies or show your enemy, show your mercy, show your enemies mercy. He he did parallel that, and you point or, or he uh, he juxtaposed them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, yeah. He, he he contrasted that in Luke, as you pointed out in the last episode when we talked about this. And so Jesus does seem to specifically address these subjects, and even though he doesn't do it the way that perhaps we would have wanted him to do it, doesn't mean he didn't do it. And so I think very clearly. Jesus did talk about these things, just maybe not in the ways that we would have wanted him to, but he does. He, he, he talks about them conceptually. And I was actually at, a, at an event this weekend, and there was a park, and I noticed that there were some uh, people handing out tracts. And, you know, I like having Bible discussions with people. And so they were uh, Reformed Baptists. And they were very clear to tell me that they thought the other Baptists in town were lost. So they explained to me which Baptists they were because they were the right Baptists. And ended up. That sounds having, so familiar. It does. It does. Actually, I, I told them I really understand where they're coming from. I said, you know, I was a part of the right church. And unfortunately, 10 years ago, you weren't a part. You wouldn't have been a part of it. And uh, so, you know, you were going to hell 10 years ago. I, I was joking with them. But we, we ended up, uh, they were telling everyone to repent and, you know, just um, street preaching, if you will. And so I ended up having a, a pretty long conversation with them. And there was about six of them there. And we talked about everything from Calvinism to uh, Christian universalism. To, I mean, we, you know, to how we view the Bible, and we inevitably got to the genocides and how we view God. And because our, our view of God is very, very, very different one from another. I mean, and that's what we both did agree on. We we both admitted we understand God very differently. And I told them, I said, there was a little girl um, playing in the park within eyesight, and she had a little balloon. And I, I just I just pointed her out to these guys. And I said, if you were convinced that God wanted you to go over there right now and just slice that little girl's throat wide open and kill her, would you? And they hesitated, <laughs> thankfully. And they said, well, that's that's not the way God works today. And I said, well, do you believe that it was moral to do that in the Old Testament? You know, during those times, was this, was this okay? Because we had talked about, you know, God doesn't change and, and all those types of things. God, ha- if, if we're going to serve God, he has to be a consistent God. He may, rea- he may interact with people differently at times. He may accommodate different um, practices and allow things. But as far as his nature... If you believe God really commanded that they kill all these innocent people, do you think that was immoral back then? And they go, well, no, of course not. I said, so would it be immoral today? (laughs) I said, because if you say yes, then you're saying that the morals of God change, Uh, which 
ironically, is what you're out here telling people isn't the case. And I said, and if you if you say that uh, no, that there's there would be nothing immoral about it, then what would keep what would keep you from just believing that you could go and kill that girl if indeed you thought and were convicted God wanted you to do that? And they said, well, you're you're. They actually said this. They said, well, you're not recording this or anything, are you? And I said, no, I'm not recording anything. They said, well, yes, I would. I would, I would go over there and kill that little girl if I thought God wanted me to. And I said, well, at what point do, do you, you know, get to, uh, at what point do you start thinking, you know, maybe I need to reconsider my understanding of God? I said, is there, is there anything that you would believe about God, like any conviction you could have about God that would, ma- that would allow you to, to perhaps question or reconsider your convictions? Are you just hook, line, and sinker? This is it. No critical thought. If if you thought, if you were convinced, which I didn't ask him what it would take to be convinced that God wanted him to do that, but if he was convinced, you know, that God wanted him to just go over there and just, you know, take a knife and slice this innocent three-year-old girl's neck open and kill her, yeah, he, he would have no problem with that because that's the holiness of God. That's the, uh, of course, um, as Calvinists, they use the word, um, goodness, it's, it's uh, what, what word am I? It's come on, y'all know what word I'm talking about. The sovereignty of God. There it is. There it is. Uh, but they said, well, that's just the sovereignty of God and just falling back on that. So I said, well, do, does God have morals then? Like, 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 does God have a set of morals? Or can he just change at any time? And or whatever God decides to do all of a sudden becomes okay. And if that's the case, then is this is this not just uh, another ideology that says there's really no such thing as right and wrong? Because I believe Jesus is a lot more objective than that. And I, I turned it around on him a little bit. I said, you know, to me, it sounds like you've been really influenced by postmodernism to believe such an object, uh, subjective way of viewing right and wrong. I said, I, I believe God has given us a much more uh, concrete and objective standard of what love is and what love looks like. And um, they said, well, whatever God tells us to do is love. And I said, well, whatever you're convicted, God is telling you to do is love. And they go, yes. And I said, so really, there's nothing that you wouldn't do if you thought that you were supposed to do it and God commanded. He goes, no, I, I would do whatever God tells me to do. That's terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. Yeah. Well, and I think there's, you know, there's a key point there, because at what point are we serving the idea of God? As, mm-hmm. as in, well, when you mentioned the word sovereignty, that's loving God for a certain role that we believe God fills, rather than the question of loving God for God's self. Um, what, what is the kind of personality that you would be drawn to worship? Because, because this sort of God is truly, by, by his nature alone, deserving of worship. Um, a thought exercise I've used with students sometimes is, I know it's impossible to imagine, but what if the tables were turned and the devil uh, won the upper hand? gained control of heaven, right? The enemy of, of humanity and, uh, and God. Again, I know it's hypothetical. I know it's, it's nonsense. But imagine God lost and was cast in shackles down to hell. Would you still choose to serve God because you know in your heart God is deserving of your love and adoration? That's even powerful. If, even if you would not benefit, I don't know how if I can answer that honestly, but I think it's a worthwhile question to. Really no, no, I wouldn't. No, no, yeah, no, yeah. no but but no, that's that's, that's a good right? question because it hits at why are we do what are we doing? Yeah, like what 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 is what's the motivator? 
Yeah, what's this yeah. whole God thing? Like, what's the end game to begin with? Yeah. Well, yeah. it's like with dating, right? You know, sometimes you hope people say, I think that I'm in love with the idea of her, but not her for herself, you know? <laughs> uh, uh, and it goes the other way, too. But um, uh, yeah, it's it's worthwhile considering this with, with the divine. What ultimately are we worshiping? What are we serving? Yeah. What is the character of God? that demands our love not demand in the sense of just tyrannical command but in the sense of this is a god that i really would choose to love well a god, compulsion i would yeah. love this well a god a god like that mm-hmm. who, their understanding of god mm-hmm. has no boundaries mm-hmm. has no guardrails and there's no action that they could ever say is universally wrong Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I just asked him, it was a great conversation. It was very oh, cordial. Yeah. And I said, you know, I do believe that, uh, there is objective truth. I do believe that according to scripture, there are Christocentric attitudinal truths that we are to follow that never change. And in any culture and in all cultures are always wrong. I said, now it may manifest itself differently from society to society and civilization to civilization. I mean, to give a little quick point. Washing feet, for example, we don't wash feet today, but the attitude of being a servant, you know, may mean driving someone somewhere if they need groceries or, you know, something like that. Mm -hmm. But the point is, is that there are attitudinal truths that that guard us from such atrocities or at least should, because if love really, according to Jesus himself, is always going to treat the other the way I want to be treated and love does no harm to a neighbor, Mm -hmm. then any view if love does no harm to a neighbor, mm-hmm. and if God is love, and this is what Jesus taught, and this is the love he exemplified, then anything that would do harm to a neighbor cannot be love. So, yes, it is, to, in, in my mind, there is not only a little tension between go out and kill these people uh, and show mercy and love your neighbor as yourself and do not hate your enemies, do them no harm. That's not a little bit of tension. That's that that is the antithesis <laughs> of 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 I mean that is like the exact opposite there's nothing else you could say to to really put a greater divide in those two statements go out kill destroy no mercy no pity versus love pity lay down your life have compassion and if if someone cannot see that as as being uh, an issue then I don't know what else I could say. I don't. I think that that there's going to have to be something uh, within their own study, personally, or an experience that's going to have to happen to them to understand there's some issue there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do feel like we have answered that question. Well, um, if, if I may, you know, before we move on, yeah. I really do want to honor the spirit of that question. I think it is it is such a worthwhile question to ask. Yeah, as a part of the greater process. Um, I think we do want to keep in mind, again, that, that yes, end of day, God's ways are mysterious and and sometimes even seeming opposites uh, are reconciled and exist within the divine in ways that I might not understand yet. But of course, we have a twofold sort of question here. You know, can God be mysterious and integrate within God's person uh, uh, vast opposites sometimes? Uh, without any need for justification. Um, and yet the other side of the question is now we as humans, can we reasonably do that? Uh, 
And, and I think that's the sort of difference. Um, I, I love uh, um, uh, William Blake, uh, uh, an English, famous English uh, author from the, the 18th century, um, uh, a poet of the holy, you could say, uh, for reminding us, among other things, that the same God who created the lamb is the God who created the wolf as well. <laughs> um, and, oh, yeah. And so, you know, I see some of that coming out in this question. You know, there's a time for uh, for war and a time for peace. Peace, the yeah. reminds us of, right? And so, yes, on the one hand, uh, God has God's own ways uh, that are going to seem strange, weird to us. And, and yet we want to be suspicious of any, any portraiture of God, any version, you know, depiction of God that sounds too conveniently partisan, too, you know, too easy for me because it justifies what I and my people do uh, and vilifies what they over there do. Oh, that, you know, we want to be aware, uh, mindful of the co-opted God. In other words, yeah. Um, uh, here, I'm I'm indebted again, you know, to to Rudolf Otto, uh, but also <laughs> uh, Walter Brueggemann uh, in his uh, the prophetic imagination. I thought uh, spoke very well to this subject that the prophets of Israel and Judah, and of course to the degree that the Church of today might take up those reins of the prophetic calling. Still, um, we want to be mindful that that the prophets of old and of today. Uh, are going to be those who do not allow their voice or, or, you know, to the degree that they speak for God to be co-opted by their party, their nation, their, you know, king, country, what have you. Um, but that in, in all seasons, every season, um, they are able to bring a word uh, that is not shackled by our own pet uh, beliefs and desires and all of that. And as such, I mean, sometimes the community will like it, but many more times, perhaps they won't like it. Uh, yeah. Uh, here again, I'm, I'm thinking of the prophet Amos. How does he begin uh, his famous work? You know, chapter one, he starts pronouncing all of these judgments of Yahweh against the nations surrounding Israel, uh, many of whom are outright enemies of the northern kingdom of Israel. And then he circles around and he homes in on Israel as his last target. And then the laundry list of God's grievances gets a lot longer. <laughs> you know, what is he doing? Except he's trying to point out, yeah, you might like the prophet's word when it's against those guys over there. Yes, they're evil. Yeah, smoke them. And, you know, uh, but when it comes around to you, are you willing to hear it when yeah. it convicts your own heart? And that's when we know, oh, yeah. The, the divine word is not going to be the easy way out. It might be paradoxical. Uh, and Jesus shows this, right? You know, the last will be first. The first will be last. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, I have come to bring a sword. You know, he, he says in the gospel account. Uh, and yet at the same time, you look at his ministry. He's not bringing swords. He's not fighting. Um, <laughs> he might mean something different by that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But the point is. The reason why that message of Jesus is so winsome to me, why I'm convinced that that is the very work of the divine. Mm -hmm. That's the work of God. Is uh, that it doesn't it doesn't fall back into the all too easy party lines. Yeah. yeah. Um, whereas, and and I remember our our last um, uh, podcast we were talking um, together about um, comparing you know the the call to 
commit harem, you know, absolute uh, devoted destruction of all these Canaanites in the Joshua narratives. Uh, and how uh, I pointed out, if you recall, that the same kind of language is found in the Moabite stone, yeah. also known as the Misha Stele. Uh, and, and in fact, in a language very close to Hebrew, um, you might even say they're dialects of, of one larger language uh, setting. And, and so it's unmistakable, you know, that the language matches up. This is what you do. You go forth to honor, fill in the blank of your God's name here. You know, for Israel, that's Yahweh. For Moab, it's Chemosh. But Moabites and Israelites alike thought of their patron deity as, you know, the, the best expression of the divine. Uh, but it was an all too easy answer. Go forth and, you know, uh, take out God's judgment upon these wicked peoples. And of course, they're wicked, all of them, irredeemable. Uh, you know, let your eye show no pity, Deuteronomy says, right? Uh, and yeah. yet, why is that all too easy? Well, it's because it's not just God's hand doing that. It's, oh, it's the conquerors who, after they have done that, mind you, will settle in nicely into that land. And uh, don't mind if we uh, take these houses and wells and all that too. Uh, not too shabby deal doing the Lord's this work. Is, this is divine. This is what yeah. God wants us to do. And we and, and I think we did talk about this a little bit in the last episode, yeah. how when we ever see uh, war, uh, like, well, go back to the Crusades, for example, right? You're doing this because this is what God would have you to do. You're, you're, you're taking up your cross and following Jesus. And people have made that verse mean practically anything they want it to mean. They've truly weaponized that verse, not just metaphorically, but even literally. Mm -hmm. And we, we've seen that all throughout history. And that's why I believe it's so important that we don't look at the Bible uh, as, as just this flat manual, but that we understand the importance of having a Christocentric understanding that Jesus mm -hmm. is that absolute, Jesus is that framework. And there's even going to be people who disagree with that, mm -hmm. um, you know, and that even, you know, has to be established. But I believe that when we look at Jesus as the way, the truth, the life, that Jesus is the truth that sets us free and that God is love and Jesus is the manifestation of what God looks like in the flesh, then anything, that contradicts how Jesus lived and defined love cannot be from God. Um, and if it is, then we even have a much bigger problem on our hands at that point than just trying to talk about. I mean, we, we've got some huge, huge issues if that's the case. But we'll, we'll go ahead and move on to the second question. And we won't spend as much time on this because I feel like we, we've already, we, we touched on it a little bit, but they oh, go ahead. Does somebody want to say something? Oh, no, I, I was just going to say it, it, just a dovetail and, and to just to play off of what we've talked about so far to wrap this up. Yeah. Even if we can say that the holiness of God is an umbrella that covers the genocide passages of the Old Testament, even if we say that is the case, that doesn't eliminate the fact that there is a tension between two different ethics that are at yeah. play here. The holiness of God very well may cover it, but it doesn't eliminate the tension that exists. And to that end, we can then transition to that second question, Kevin. So go well, ahead, man. Yeah, and, and to just add to what you're saying, that's exactly right. Because even if we understand that as the holiness of God, now all you've done is you've shifted it from the genocide text to the holiness of God. Well, can the holiness of God found in the Old Testament contradict Jesus' holiness as man, you know, God's holiness as manifested through Jesus, which which is 
God, which is the representation to show the full God incarnate, if you will. And so if that's like you said, that's a much bigger problem. That's a much bigger tension than the genocides. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. even if you could say, well, it's okay because it's the holiness of God. Well, you haven't changed anything. Now we're just talking about, well, does the holiness of God in the, the Jewish Bible contradict Jesus as revealed uh, in, you know, God revealed in the flesh. So yeah, good point. So the second question, uh, can Dr. Test 2 go into more detail on why he believes Jesus reverses or corrected the genocide passages and slash violent text? I felt like you just scratched the surface and it was interesting to hear, but would love to hear him talk a little bit more about that. All right. Yeah. No, uh, I want to hear that too. I'm yeah. excited. <laughs> Another great question. Uh, and you're right. Um, you know, given even as long as we went, you know, uh, it, we still only have so much time. And, and we really did just scratch the surface. Uh, I'm, we got all I'm, the time in the world tonight, man. There you We're go. Just, <laughs> yeah. People are, this is one of our most viewed episodes. Or the Genocides is one of the most viewed episodes or listened episodes, downloaded episodes. So people said they really, they want, really want to hear this one fleshed out. So okay, we're here yeah. as long as you're willing to be. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I want to add too, because uh, again, even as much time as we might take tonight, it won't be enough. Um, yeah. This is, this, is a, a, this is a life's work, right? Um, uh, and in many ways, unlearning what we have learned, um, but all in the pursuit of, of God, God's grace. Uh, and so it's worthwhile. So I just want to say now before I forget, um, you know, if, if any of your listeners want to contact me, I maybe open up a can of worms here, but <laughs> um, you can find my contact info on uh, uh, Oklahoma Christian University's website, oc.edu. Uh, and, um, you know, we can put it in the show notes too. There you go. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, do, do feel welcome to, to reach out. Um, I, I love having these conversations. Um, and, uh, additionally, um, knowing that we're only going to have so much time, uh, not to toot my own horn, but I, and Kevin, you know, this, I did just put out an article recently, uh, uh, that I call Jesus and Paul on the Torah spectrum. Uh, and, uh, in that article, it touches somewhat on, on this sort of question. Um, I complicate what I think has been oversimplified, uh, in terms of what we mean by Torah or the law, as Christians often call it. Um, what is the law per se? Uh, and I also mean to, uh, make more complex the oversimplification that many Christians often have. I, I had it myself years ago, uh, thinking that Jesus and Paul set themselves up against uh, the the law, um, by which we mean Mosaic law, right? And so um, I begin by uh, blowing open what Torah means, that it's not some homogenous entity, um, but it is a multi-voiced document. That goes back to the first podcast I did with you guys, talking about the many voices of the Hebrew Bible and New Testament as well. Um, and so if you go in expecting a diversity of voices, you'll find it. If you go in expecting just one singular party position, then you, you'll fudge the numbers. You'll make it work. Yeah, I've become convinced by studying, you know, committing myself to study these texts for years now on end um, that, that there are multiple voices here and they don't all get along always. Um, 
but that's okay. Well, and, <laughs> and, and, I, and I just want to say, too, in studying this for my new book, because I do talk about this in, in Blinded by the Mob, which is now out, finally. Woo, I yes. can say that. Not it's going to be out. But, uh, you know, and you pointed me to a lot of good resources, and then I had already studied a few resources and uh, talked to some other uh, professors and even some who would be deemed more conservative than you. Mm-hmm. And even then, it seems even talking to more conservative scholars and those who, who have their doctorate's degrees and uh, those who study this for a living as well, they they I was shocked that this one particular one um, that I spoke with, he which he actually did not want me to mention him by name <laughs> because he's at a conservative uh, Church of Christ school and which that may have just given some stuff away. But no, it, it actually didn't because there's still several of them out there. And I'm saying conservative is, is a pretty broad spectrum, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but he told me that he um, actually believes that the the Torah was was probably written by multiple authors as well. And he said that while he teaches the view that Moses wrote it. He said he has found a way because that is what he's expected to teach. He said he's found a way to still be intellectually honest in his classroom and talk about how there were, uh, you know, there's other theories out there that would seem like there are probably multiple writers. And he told me that's, that's his position. And he said, you know, Kevin, practically anybody who studies this in great detail comes to that conclusion. He said, uh, there's very, he said, now there's very, there are some out there who obviously don't, he said, but, um, you'll see there's a, a bias driving that. Um, he said, you know, there, there's a big bias driving that. And he said, even he has to be careful not to main, you know, to maintain his intellectual honesty while also not losing his job, which can be a very difficult balance. But he did say that, uh, practically everyone, is willing, you know, who studies this, not everyone, but practically he said, everyone who truly is a scholar in this field has come to that conclusion. Almost kind of like that's now in the past. I mean, that that's almost a bygone conclusion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that's it. I mean, you know, what many people might not recognize in the larger body of the churches, you know, is, is that those of us who go into scholarship in uh, old Testament or new Testament, um, it's it's not like we gave away our faith. I mean, some some did, you know, but but for many of us, uh, it it just changed the landscape a little, um, and and many of us are still very committed to to God, uh, and but we have we have definitely had to alter our equation when we found uh, that some of our suppositions didn't hold up, and that's well, any good field works that way. But that can be that can be tricky in the larger faith community to talk about such things. Um, anyway, you know, not to get too sidetracked there, but I, I say all of that about the article just to point out, um, in hopefully in brief here, that if if pressed to talk about what is Jesus's view of Torah of the law as we call it, then you don't have to look far in the gospel accounts to see that when when discussing that abstract concept of the law. Um, held at a distance, uh, Jesus's words seem very clear across the Gospels, right? That, uh, you know, and most famously, perhaps the Sermon uh, on the Mount uh, in beginning Matthew 5, you know, don't think that I came to abolish uh, uh, the law. I didn't come to abolish uh, the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. 
Uh, and, you know, not one jot or tittle is going to pass away from that. And whoever teaches anybody to, <laughs> to break the least of these commands will be least in this kingdom dynamic, the kingdom of God. Um, so that's a pretty clear statement regarding the Pentateuch, regarding law, um, that Jesus uh, uh, historically seems to be saying, yeah, uh, nothing's changing there. No game playing, uh, game change for his Jewish audience. And we need to be reminded, Jesus is operating as a Jew in a Jewish audience. Um, now, at the same time, you know, the reason why the question comes up is not just because of Paul, and Paul gets mis misunderstood too, but I'm not going to get into that. Um, but even on terms of Jesus alone, if you look at all the stories in the Gospels, you seem at points to get the the impression that if we oversimplify, it's like, oh, yeah, Jesus, I guess, is shirking the law. He's just like, doing away with it. But no, you know, it's it's just that it's a complicated conversation. On the one hand, if you were to ask Jesus, especially in, in historical context, right, the eternal word made Jesus of Nazareth, um, you know, if, if you were to ask the man in context, um, do you think that all of Torah is valid and, you know, and should be upheld by God's people, he would tell you yes. I mean, the Gospels seem to bear that out. Um, but when you look at a case-by-case -case, uh, examples of how he treats commands from within law, and this comes out more in my article, which, again, we don't have a time for. That's why I say uh, if any of your listeners are interested. We can link uh, that as well, too, that article. Yes, it's Dialogismos is... Uh, the um, OC's Bible Department um, uh, uh, online journal. It's free. Um, but uh, in volume six, that's our recent one, um, that's where it came out. And, and so anyway, all that to say, uh, I talk about how Torah is, is not a monolithic entity. It is made up of these multiple voices, and some of them even fight against each other. And I give some examples in the article. Um, and... Uh, and then I go on to say, and within greater Jewish history, um, there have been plenty of, of Jews, Jesus included, um, who have taken various stances supporting, uh, you know, alternatively this voice over here, but against this voice over here in Torah. Uh, a, a conversation process, a debate <coughs> that even began within the pages of Torah itself. And... Uh, and as a case in point, one of the examples I give is, well, think about Jesus' stance on Sabbath. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you ask the average Christian, you know, uh, what do you think? Is Jesus pro-Sabbath or against Sabbath? Uh, many might say, well, I, I guess he's against, right? You know, he, he seems pretty lax about it. <laughs> but listen to him carefully in the Gospels. He's not against Sabbath at all. His language is very clear. It's just that how does he interpret the, the very... Uh, founding ethic of Sabbath, he, and it, that becomes comes out in all the Gospels, right? The Sabbath was made for man, and I'm using man in that sense of humanity, humankind, if only because there's a play on words, right? Because he, he goes on to say, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Uh, and, of course, that's his preferred title for himself, right? Son of Man. So, uh, the, the idea there is he was what he was correcting was a, another strand of interpreting the meaning of Sabbath coming from some sectors within Judaism, and it's you can find it in Torah as well, 
some would say, no, Sabbath is made just to honor God and God's holiness. Um, and you find that ethic in uh, the famous story of the Israelites when they're in, in the wilderness, finding a man, uh, gathering up some sticks on the Sabbath day, and that constitutes work. And so they consult with Yahweh, and Yahweh says, you shall take him out and stone him. And so they do. Um that doesn't sound like a Sabbath that was made for man. <laughs> can you imagine? Yeah. yeah. Can you imagine the people as they stone him, like, didn't you know, you fool, this day was for you. Whack, you know? <laughs> like, no. You know, if it's for man, then it's an invitation and it's gracious. You know, come here, friend, rest. And you will find those voices in Torah as well. It's like uh, killing you on your birthday because you took the day off. Like, yeah, what yeah. are you doing? Didn't what you know the birthday's yeah. for you here? Yeah. I'm going to kill you. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. You should have taken the day off. Well, you know, so, so just, just working to, harder. Yeah. So, so kind of wrap up so far what you're, or yeah. not wrap up, but to, to summarize so far what you're saying, basically, mm-hmm. um, you know, just make sure the audience is following along here with us. So, yes. Jesus. And when he's relating to scripture, he's relating to it um, not probably in the way that we were taught that Jesus was relating to scripture or even the way that we relate to scripture, which is this this set of static and objective truths. And Jesus is just coming along saying, hey, uh, that's all Old Testament. That's all Old Covenant. Uh, now I'm going to give you all new rules and laws to follow. And mm-hmm. from now on, that's what you're to do. And that was the view that I was taught. And you're exactly right. Jesus is seen, do, you know, when um, you know, we see Jesus oftentimes, for example, um, you know, when Jesus healed a man with leprosy. Well, that was a violation of Leviticus chapter five. And yet, you know, he touched the man or not healing the man, but he touched the man with leprosy. And but yet then he went and said, go, you know, go make your your sacrifice, which is part of the law. <laughs> so it's like, well, well, which is it, Jesus? You know, are you are you cool with? breaking the law, but then you're turning around. And when I say break the law, I'm, I'm using that language tongue in cheek, because while I do think Jesus broke the law in the sense of how the scribes and Pharisees viewed it, and even the way that it was written, Jesus was teaching us how to relate to law, that uh, compassion and mercy has a huge part in how we interpret scripture. And so even though the law may say something, and we may break what looks to be the literal reading of it. We may actually be keeping it by looking at the heart of the law, which we've discussed that in other episodes as well. Uh, but the point is, is you're right. Jesus is not just coming and saying, ah, don't worry about this anymore. Don't worry about the Levitical law. Don't worry about the Mosaical law. He is showing them kind of how to relate to it, I believe. Mm-hmm. He's, he's explaining to them, this is, you know, the, the Sabbath was made, as you pointed out, for the benefit of humankind, mm-hmm. uh, not the other way around. And in fact, I think we can extend that out. The whole of law was always given for us. <laughs> you know, God wasn't like, okay, I'm going to make laws and then I'm going to create humans who have to follow them. Ha 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 ha. And let's see how difficult it can be. No, it's the it's the exact opposite of that. And And, you know, you did a great job in that article showing how not just Jesus, but as you pointed out, Paul as well, mm-hmm. is it because it does seem if you're if if you just do a straight reading, it seems like well Jesus and Paul seem to sometimes be all about you know what we find in the Old Testament, quote unquote, and then they're using it to kind of prove their point. And at other times, they're they're not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they mm-hmm. they seem to be dismissing some things, and yeah. that's because they are because it is multivocal. And I think Jesus is showing them how to relate to the law, which is a uh, there's a lot more elasticity there 
than just going to it and saying, Jesus took it and boom, there it is. And, you know, I even saw an illustration where someone had a cup and they, 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 you know, here's the water God poured in the cup and then Jesus poured that water out and he poured new water in. And I mean, it's just all gone and here's the fresh and that's just not right. And so, 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 so with that in mind, Mm -hmm. um, you know, so so in what ways do you think Jesus interacted with any of the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, in such a way that would, in your mind at least, mm-hmm. either solidify or point to the idea that Jesus was reversing that ideology of of, of go out and kill the yeah. Canaanites, go out and kill like what what would you say? Um, because there are there are people who obviously are going to disagree. And they're going to say, "No, Jesus never even touched on this. Jesus, yeah, yeah. Jesus didn't reverse this at all. That's that's just you know that's just Doctor Test too. He's just trying to, um, you know, make this fit what he what he wants to or, or whatever. You know, what would you say to to somebody like that? And what would your reasoning be? Yeah. So so to take that and, and come back to the question again, you know. Um, and I want to re- repeat this section of it, right? So why why do I believe Jesus reverses or corrects the genocide passages, violent texts? On the one hand, I said all of all of that that I did, just as a way of saying, on the one hand, you're not going to see Jesus in the Gospels just outright come out and say, uh, you know, the book of Joshua. I hate that book. You know, he's like he's not going to do that. Um, to the same degree that though he does counter certain voices within Torah. He really does. Again, by virtue of saying um, Sabbath is made for man, you know, and, and it's a liberating principle. You can see that in his ministry that goes against thinking of the Sabbath as a way of keeping tabs on others and whacking them with stones if they break the Sabbath. Um, so too, you know, the Jesus that we see in the Gospels all of his language about at least the abstract concept of the law, the prophets. And by the way, I want your listeners to understand Joshua as a book is included in Jewish tradition under the label prophets. Um, so the books that in Christian tradition we think of as the history books, the historical mm-hmm. books, um, those are called former prophets. Um, uh, that's namely Joshua through Second Kings with the exception of Ruth. Ruth is put out elsewhere. Um, but... Um, those books are considered prophets because the idea is they speak with a sort of prophetic voice. They don't just tell history. They tell God's interpretation of history. They say, you know, their authors are claiming to say, this is what Yahweh God was doing in history. Um, So all that is to say, when Jesus comments on the law and the prophets, he validates both bodies of, of literature. And that would include Joshua for his Jewish audience. Um, So, all of that is to say, yes, you're not going to find uh, any statements, none that I can recall, in the New Testament of Jesus uh, outright calling out that book of Joshua and, and saying, we're against that. But um, it's largely in the, the more subtle language that he uses, like what we brought up uh, in the last session, right? Okay, I, I, can I interrupt yeah. you? I got to say one thing, man. This yeah. just came to my mind uh, because I actually had this this conversation about how Jesus related to the text, and yeah, yeah. it's funny because some things in the Old Testament that there's no negative commentary on, we still write off and say, "Yeah, but that's not right. That's not that's not godly." And one of those things, for example, is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Just you know, in the background, we just 
hear of this normative behavior at that time of, hey, you want to rape my daughters? Because, you know, that's what you did back then. Women were second class citizens and you it just would send them out. They they you didn't view them. The women were not viewed or treated with the same honor and respect as, as men were. And so for Lot to have offered his daughters to be raped in this story, you know, it it kind of messes with our cultural sensitivities. But back then, mm-hmm. it's just that 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 was that's there was nothing wrong with that, according to the way that they would have viewed things in that culture. And we see a story similar in Judges 19. And and yet in the New Testament, Jesus references Sodom and Gomorrah. And never once does he go, oh, by the way, I just want to correct this about Lot because everyone knows, you know, like you guys thought, I mean, no one's ever said this is wrong to offer up your daughters to be raped. But I say to you, it's it's wrong for your uh, to you for you to offer up your daughters to be raped. Jesus didn't say that, even though he directly addressed the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, um, whether that was parabolical or, you know, more of an allegory or whether that was a true story. But either way, the point is, is that Jesus, the expectation we have is Jesus was supposed to clean up all the Old Testament. If that's our expectation, well, we have to be consistent in anything Jesus didn't directly address and say this was wrong. They shouldn't have done that. Should we just assume was right? Should we assume that, hey, today, if, uh, you know, somebody comes knocking on my door and they're wanting, you know, to, to, to gang rape the guests that I have, I'll say, oh, hold on. Hey, Bethany, you mind going outside? There's some guys out there. You know, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous to think that. But how many people make the argument that just because Jesus, when he addressed those texts, didn't specifically um, talk about that being wrong, Who's going to say that that mean, meant Jesus was okay with it? And even Peter, what does Peter say? He calls him a what? A righteous man without any negative commentary. And so mm-hmm. should we assume that everything he did was was okay for all time? But anyway, I just wanted to interject mm-hmm. that to make that point that when we go into the text expecting Jesus to correct everything that we today would say is wrong and sinful— um, that's an expectation that we actually do not hold consistently on other issues. So it'd be inconsistent to hold that same standard to these texts, I believe, as well. If Does that point make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, that's part of it. I mean, this is this is an ancient, again, uh, an ancient Jewish conversation. Yeah, yeah. In Second Temple Judaism, uh, which was already a diverse community. <laughs> uh, and if you, you know, if anybody wants to learn what these conversations mean uh, uh, to the best of their ability, um, then you want to take the time to unpack all the complicated nature of that, that sector of history. Uh, and Matthew, Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were, they weren't, it wasn't a Q&A of, Jesus, what do you think about the Jewish text, right? Yeah. Like, like that's not, that's what we're doing here, but that's not, that's not what would have happened back then, or yeah. it's not what happened. They're, they're not even complete biographies when you think about it, right? Yeah, you know? exactly, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but all that to say, yeah, so, you know, again, you're not going to find some soundbite of Jesus denouncing <laughs> Joshua outright. Um and at least in theory, his language suggests that he is pro-Torah and, and prophets and all of that. But again, just as, as this, this is the reason of my madness, <laughs> um, just as much as you can say that on a case-by-case scenario, Jesus does push back against certain ideologies found in the Pentateuch, in the law, um, while at the same time saying, you know, he's, he's quoted in the Gospels as saying, um, 
not one jot or tittle shall, shall pass from the law, right? Um, well, so too, you see these affirming um, statements about the, the prophets. And again, that includes Joshua for Jews. Um, and yet it's in the particulars where you would say, oh, that gesture of Jesus or that statement over here uh, pushes back. One of those I, I brought up uh, the last time was where Jesus says, you have, and this is also Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said, you shall love uh, your neighbor and hate your enemy. Uh, and we want to be reminded that it wasn't Jesus first who said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Um, that, that comes from the book of Leviticus of all places. Um, but, but careful readers who know their Old Testament, I know there are many out there, are going to say, wait, where does it say you shall hate your enemy? And you're not going to find that language precisely um, in, in Hebrew Bible. Uh, but what is he referencing? Because he, ha- he must have something in mind. Uh, and I think it's most likely he, he does have in mind um, the sentiment found, especially in the book of Deuteronomy, you know, as part of law. Um, which, you know, as we talked about earlier, you know, you let your eye not pity them uh, when talking about the enemies of Israel in the land of Canaan. Um, and, of course, the book of Joshua, which basically makes that its its motto, <laughs> you know, without having to say it, right? You shall go forth and, uh, and, and conquer these people, be strong and courageous. And, um, and so it doesn't have to say it verbatim in those terms for it to teach the ethic of, you shall hate your enemy. Um, and so here is Jesus saying, whatever you might have been taught along those lines, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Here's what I'm telling you now. Uh, and remember his language for it, at least as, as um, uh, Matthew's gospel understands it, is that what he's doing is fulfilling the law and the prophets, bringing them to fuller realization. That, that's, that deserves its own session as well, which we don't have time for. You know, what does fulfillment mean ultimately? But let it suffice to say in short, fulfillment is not simply so-and-so said something would happen predictively, and boom, Jesus did that. Uh, fulfillment in the larger gospel of Matthew means um, br- bringing something to a greater realization that even the original author might not have realized. Um, and so... Um, yeah, so at the very least, you could say Jesus is changing the way that God's people act. We don't go after our enemies anymore. I can't remember last time, though, I, I probably brought up, right, Matthew 15, Jesus and the Canaanite woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's another, if you want an example of why I think Jesus does, going back to this question, right, why Jesus reverses the genocide passages, the violent texts that we find um, particularly violent text against one's enemies. And that's that, that's the co-opting, right? That's what we have to be aware of. Is it too easy for me to say, yeah, God wants me to smite my enemies? Of course he does. They're bad guys. I'm always good. Um, <laughs> and, and, and this is the proof in the pudding, right? Jesus, and, and we talked about this last time, Jesus means Joshua. The name Jesus is just the Greek rendering of Joshua. So, you know, imagine if you ripped it out of context. Joshua was walking along the way, if you didn't know which Joshua it was, uh, and uh, he meets a Canaanite woman. Well, you know, if you're thinking Joshua, son of Nun from the Old Testament, then you're thinking, oh, I know, I know what's coming next. He's gonna, he's gonna lop off her head or something. 
and this Joshua, Joshua from Nazareth, meets this Canaanite woman. And this is interesting. Matthew's is the most Jewish sounding gospel, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so he knows his audience is up on the meaning of Canaanite. Yeah. So when they hear the, the other gospel writers don't, you know, Luke calls her a Syrophoenician woman. Um, that doesn't have the same punch. But to call her Canaanite for a Jewish audience would mean, oh, you know, the, the terrible people. And when he meets her, now, I, I, I won't say that he treats her kindly. Um, he's very dismissive and we would say rude, outright rude to her uh, initially in his interaction. But that's not where the story stops. And by the end of it all, he recognizes this woman's great faith. He honors that faith. He heals her daughter. Uh, it's a very human and compassionate moment at the end. And for a Jewish audience, the, the message could not have been any clearer but it's we modern Christians sometimes who miss who miss that, you know, that this Joshua, I call him Joshua 2.0. I, I would rather serve the second Joshua. He's my Lord. <laughs> um, Joshua 2.0 is the one that loves even Canaanites. Yeah. And I would push the envelope and say, I bet he loves Hittites and Perizzites and Jebusites and Girgash, you know, that, that laundry <laughs> list of the enemies. right? Yeah, I think Jesus loves them, too. Otherwise, what do we do with that passage? God so loved the world, right? From John. Yeah. No, and I think that's, I think that definitely answers the question and goes into more detail about how Jesus reverses that ethic. Because Mm -hmm. if we were to summarize that thusly, we could say that even though if, if we look at how Jesus takes these ideas and juxtaposes them against each other in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said, you know, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Just like you said, you don't see that statement, hate your enemy, specifically mentioned in in the Torah, but you do see that implication undergirding that idea in Deuteronomy, like you said. Jesus' actions and what he says definitely undoes that idea. It, It corrects that idea because Jesus is bringing to their understanding the best reading of Torah in that they should ascribe to. Would, would it be fair to summarize it that way, or is there more nuance than I'm missing in that brief summary? Yeah, no, I think that's a good way of putting it. I mean, there, there's so much again here to unpack. Yeah. Um, and it's like any of us, you like press me with a question on one day, you know, on, on Monday and then Tuesday with the same question, um, I might give you a different answer. <laughs> we are all of us walking contradictions, aren't we? You know, we Thank might have well, general patterns where we, you know, we get systematic. We have certain arenas where our language is consistent. But sometimes, given the moment, we might view it from a slightly different angle. And that, this is why I say, you know, if pressed, uh, the historical Jesus, you know, if you could put a mic up to his his mouth and say, you know, what's your position on the law and the prophets, you know, <laughs> and, and including Joshua, you know, and you might get an answer. I mean, all of this. Well, and, they, and they did that a lot, you know, the scribes and, did, yes. and, and Jesus would give them paradoxical answers that they didn't know. They didn't know how to handle. And, yeah. you know, and he might I, say, you know, who, who among you is without sin, you know, yeah. well, then let your eye not pity yourself. <laughs> Yeah, they're like, well, what do we do with this? You know, yeah. and sometimes we're left. I think even if we could ask Jesus questions, he would give us answers that would be like, um, that didn't an- that didn't answer the question the way I wanted you to. But I will say that I, in addition to what you said, I'm a, I am now a huge believer that the feeding of the 5,000 Jews and the feeding of the 4,000 Gentiles um, is, a, is a direct 
I mean, I believe this is a direct connotation back to um, him telling them that they need to be accepting even the the Canaanite nations are, of course, well, at that point, everyone, and that what they did was not in keeping with what Jesus was about. Um, and, and I and I wanted just to quote this passage because I did I did I think we brought this up on the last episode, but you know you have you have Jesus feeding the five thousand Jews, and then Jesus after he um, heals this Canaanite slash you know Gentile slash non Jewish woman who whoever she was, depending upon which writer we we listen to. Um, it does appear he goes to what would have been considered non-Jewish territory, and he ends up feeding the 4,000. And in Mark's account, um, well, we, we see that there were 12 baskets left over when Jesus fed the 5,000, which 12, you know, obviously we're talking 12 tribes of Israel. I mean, that the number 12 represented Israel. But then also you see Deuteronomy um, chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, it speaks of these nations, and it's always the seven nations. And that's even repeated in the New Testament, the seven nations, the seven nations. And you see in Mark chapter 8, verses 19 through 21, Jesus, I believe, was apparently making this point, and he was making it kind of right on the nose because he said, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many loaves uh, or how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And he said, and the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up then? And they said to him, seven. And he said, do you still not yet understand? And if you look at that phrase, do you still not yet understand consistently, consistently um, from my studies, and, and you may be able right here to call me out on this, and if so, feel free to, because uh, I'm, I'm wrong a lot. But in my studies, when Jesus asked that question, do you still not yet understand, it's typically about what's going to be happening. Now, sometimes he's talking about, of course, his crucifixion and things of that nature. But hmm. even when we look in the the like Acts, for example, when they're asking, hey, what about the kingdom? You know, what's going to happen? And, it, you know, Jesus like, you don't understand still. You know, you're, you're still not understanding that ultimately that points to the inclusion of all in God's kingdom. And I think that's wrapped up in what Jesus did in his redemptive work on the cross and the atonement. And that that's always tied back to that. And so, you know, to, to me, this is really strong. I mean, when you put everything together, kind of this threefold argument of, first of all, you know, Jesus did look at these principles and he, he didn't discuss specifics per se. I mean, he discussed some specifics, but he did so um, to lay forth the ideologies of this is how you understood it. This is how you related to it. This is how I am relating to it and telling you how you should understand this. This is how you should treat one another. That plus Jesus healing this, what is described as a Canaanite woman, plus Jesus feeding the 5,000 and the 4,000, the symbolism, and them still not understanding what's going on. And they still, it took them for a long time to understand everybody's included in the kingdom. Um, I think it's pretty clear Jesus did address this. He didn't address it in the way we would have addressed it today because, well, this is 2,000 years later and you know we're, we're, we're in a completely different civilization but Jesus addressed it, I think, the way he would have addressed anything else um, in that, you know, in that time. And uh, so I also was going to bring up 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4, because even Paul admits that under the, the old covenant in these Jewish scriptures only gave us a veiled glimpse, a veiled glimpse of who God was. But through Jesus, we, we have a fuller understanding of, of what God is like, which meant that sometimes, you know, if you put a veil over something, there can be some... So some just it could be distorted. There can be uh, some things we don't see as clearly, and I think that that's another point. Just wanted to 
to um, to bring up there in Second Corinthians four three through four. Well, and to that end, it, you know, if if we look at this and we we've discussed at length how Jesus has reversed and corrected those genocide passages and those violent texts, our third question that we want to discuss this evening is this idea that if Jesus corrected the genocide texts in the Sermon on the Mount by teaching a love ethic, and not just in the Sermon on the Mount, but in other places as well, and he's talking about love for one's enemies and how mercy should be shown, the question is, why didn't Paul get that memo? The question says that if Jesus taught that, why did Paul apparently not get that message? In Acts 13 and 16, when Paul was given the opportunity for a word of encouragement to preach to the Jews, he specifically mentioned God destroying the seven nations of Canaan, and he attributes this to God in Acts 13 and 19. And from this, there's kind of three questions in one. And the first question is, or the first part, if Jesus reversed the narrative of the Old Testament, why didn't Paul understand that? Secondly, out of everything Paul could have mentioned about God, his love, his kindness, compassion, etc., why did he bring up the genocide passages? And thirdly, with your understanding, what do you make out of what Paul said here? Yes. All right. So there's a lot packed in here. This is another it's a very great... simple question. Yeah. yeah. Very simple question. <laughs> this is a tiered question. Yeah. Um, okay. Can I, can I just admit this is my question? I, I did write this one and include this in the notes. So, oh, so yeah. dude, the fact that it's a compound question, we got like five of them in one. I'm like, I think that's Kevin written all over it. <laughs> I didn't tell you that, Grant, but it is. This is my question. So, no, you, 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 you can, you can, uh, you can say whatever you want about it, man. Yeah, well, now that I know it's from you, it's awful. It's yeah, it's a horrible <laughs> question. Yeah, you don't have to be cordial anymore. Such no, a bad no. question. No, but this really is good. Um, now. First, I mean, it gives me an opportunity to address what I think is uh, one of those assumptions we make incorrectly. Oftentimes, I do it myself. Um, we think that just because we see this this one uh, uh, voice over here in scriptures, we're going to see that party line everywhere, um, and and maybe nowhere else do we do that more than with the teachings of Jesus, imagining that all of his apostles equally got it on the same level and <laughs> ran with it, you know? Um, and I think it doesn't take long, you know, just reading the book of Acts, uh, let alone Paul's letters to get a better understanding that in the early church, it did not come so simply. They had debates. They had, um, you know, I mean, and, and hopefully informed by the love that Christ taught them, but, but still, we can see signs that it got heated at times, like between Paul and Barnabas. I don't need to tell your listeners. Um, and between Paul and Peter and, uh, and Paul and James. A lot of them involve Paul. But <laughs> yeah, Paul just seems to be a little bit of a contrarian, yeah. maybe. But yeah, so yeah. If, you, if you don't agree with him, just go and, you know, masculate yourself. I mean, yes, it's, yes. you know, he's a bulldog of the faith. But I love him for that, too. <laughs> Because had he not been so, you know, so pig-headed uh, about it, then we as Gentile Christians, I'm a Gentile Christian at least, would we have felt uh, as much ownership in the church? Um, uh, we take that for granted these days. The dominant, yeah. you know, the, yeah. the larger part of churches uh, uh, universally uh, consist of, of Gentile names, you know, Gentile people. Um, and Jewish Christians are there, but, but they are now the minority. That has flipped. Um, since the earliest generations of the church. So 
that's thanks to, to Paul saying, you know what? You don't have to be Jewish at all to be a part of Christ's movement. Uh, and he fought people on that, you know. But all that is to say that the writers who contributed to the New Testament corpus, no less than uh, the writers of the Old Testament corpus, as we talked about the first podcast I did with you guys way back, um, had their own opinions as, as writers. And that doesn't have to diminish the value of viewing these texts as the work of God, God inspiring these authors. But what that might demand of us is that we tweak our earlier understandings of what we think inspiration is, how that operates. Now, not to go back into that. There's a whole other podcast right there about inspiration, dude. That's why I love you, Grant. Every time we have you on, we get fodder for future episodes. So just keep going, man. Yeah. Well, that's that's fodder for a past one, too. (laughs) Anyway, all that is to say, so first on, uh, the first hand, we want to recognize Paul. um, It is is at least possible that Paul didn't get all of Jesus' messages. Um, Well, we know Peter didn't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, you already brought that up. So, uh, you know, we, we know Peter didn't. Um, well, when it came to be shown more plainly, is like, no, no. Yeah, yeah, he didn't clear. at first anyway. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, it is possible. We want to at least entertain that possibility. Paul did not, um, uh, even though he calls himself slave of Christ um, and, and Christ's uh, man in chains, you know, um, he might not have even agreed with everything Jesus of Nazareth taught, technically speaking. Now, I say that all hypothetically. Uh, in fact, yeah, because people think, people are going to hear that, right? And they're going to yeah. they're going to freak out and go, no, "Oh, yeah. you know." Having heard that, hear this even more. <laughs> um, I think Paul understood Jesus's message very well and continued to interpret Jesus's message well into new scenarios that came up that could not have been anticipated during Jesus's limited, I say, uh, geographically limited ministry. Uh, because, of course, you know, he, he stuck around uh, those regions of Galilee, the Decapolis and all that, you know, but didn't branch out all that much when you think about it. Um, his biggest excursion being going down to Judea. So, um, you know, Paul is the one who took that abroad and handled, of course, new sets of questions that came up for the church as it continued to grow. Uh, where they couldn't just tug on Jesus's robe as easily. Now, now he's at the right hand of the Father. So, what do we do? Um, so, I think Paul's interpretation of Jesus speaking into the next generation or two of the church is informed by Jesus's ethic. Uh, the, you know, the whole basis of the law and the prophets is love. We hear that from Paul as well, um, and he's on point. But there are difficulties with interpreting Paul. Um, I mean, uh, you know, uh, N.T. Wright's uh, three-volume series on Jesus in the early church, right, that series. I'm familiar with it. I haven't read it, yeah. but I know of it, yes. It's great. Each one is pretty thick. And then he added a fourth one. Somewhere. Who's N.T. Who's Wright again? Yeah. I'm, I'm just kidding. Yeah, just yeah. Kidding. I thought you <laughs> But then his fourth volume on Paul is super thick, you know. Um because <laughs> Paul, Paul is complicated. He's a lot more difficult to wrestle with. Yeah, but let's let's start um, with, for example, you, you raised the question of Acts thirteen sixteen. Um, this is where Paul is in uh, Pisidian Antioch, if memory serves, right? Um, and yeah, and going back to that text, 
what's fascinating is you're right. You know, he he mentions uh, uh, God defeating the kind of the history. Nations. Yeah, yeah. As a part of his larger history of God's people, Israel. Um, so we do want to point out first of all that it's not his major selling point. It's just a it's a feature along the way. But it is rather interesting, given that this gospel is a gospel of love that he goes spreading and why this language specifically about this antagonism of God against the seven nations uh, and then giving that land to his people. And I think and we want to remember as well, this is not just Paul speaking here. What we to be honest about it, we're really reading Luke's or whoever whoever's words of what Paul said, mm-hmm. probably not dictation method, but the way that many ancient writers uh, uh, wrote their, even their histories, um, just trying to capture the general spirit in which he spoke. And given what we know about Paul's letters, it sounds like something Paul would say, right? Yeah. All that to say, I, I would approach it more from the, the angle of what is Luke doing with Paul's rhetoric here? And I think this is fascinating because you're right. It's, I mean, it's clearly a, a language of antagonism against the nations. But what is Paul, even Paul's first missionary journey, what's it about? Bringing the good news um, first to Jews. Paul always begins with the synagogue, if there's a local synagogue, uh, but also to the nations uh, you know, or Gentiles. You know, what gets translated as Gentiles, but could just as well be translated the nations. Mm-hmm. And this is why I think we miss it. Because if you were to translate it consistently, you would say, oh, and he drove out you know, the, the seven Gentiles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but that that gets translated to nations. And later on, uh, after he has delivered his message, the gospel of Christ, um, you find that in this synagogue, there are, of course, Jews and there are these God fearing Gentiles, uh, the the nations. In other words, the other nations aside from Israel. But these individuals have chosen to put their faith in Israel's God and they haven't committed to being proselytes yet. They you know, especially the males are probably a little skittish about circumcision. As they uh, should be. As they should be. <laughs> but um, but they, they hear this message, which culminates with a message of hope for them. And it's exciting. And what we find beginning in Pisidian Antioch there on that first missionary journey, this is where Paul really starts to face his first batch of collective um, uh, uh I say Jewish, but I understand me correctly here. This is just a subsect you know, of, of the larger Judaism. We want to be careful with that language, not to vilify Jews altogether. But it, certainly uh, some of the, the Jews in that synagogue did not like the idea that this good news of their own Mashiach, their own Messiah, is also good news for those who are not Jewish. Uh, and... And so uh, notice if you read uh, through the rest of that, any mention of Gentiles, depending on your translation, or the nations, um, uh, after the content of his sermon, uh, says that they rejoiced and they were happy, and, and many of them were, uh, you know, counted themselves worthy of eternal life. You know, they, they accepted that message. Um, so I think what the author is going for there, not, not necessarily Paul specifically, but how how the author is crafting that whole scene is he actually wanted his readers to notice, oh yeah, yikes, in the past, we've got some of these, this language of God attacking the nations um, all to bless his, his precious little nation over here, you know, uh, and hey, that's good for you if you happen to be that nation, you know, 
And yeah. what nation hasn't told itself a very similar story, by the way? Um, you know, <laughs> the main, you know, dominant God, that's the one we serve. And uh, he blesses us and crushes all of our enemies. Um, so. Well, people do that with America. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. yeah. You know, yeah, we're, we're not the we're, only ones to have that yeah. sense of mm-hmm. of uh, religious nationalism. And yeah. Anyway, all this to say it. I think the, the author was intentionally planting that kind of language there to say, yeah, think about the history of Israel in the past and how, you know, the story that uh, Israel has told itself, God's people is, you know, we God crushed the nations to make room for us and give us an inheritance. And now he's saying, guess what? This boon of inheritance and all these blessings God intends to sprinkle on all the nations. He's, he's bursting the gates wide open uh, and it looks like they're just letting anybody in now. And, and, and you <laughs> there know, goes the those, neighborhood. Yeah. For those yeah, who had been keepers of the tradition that scared them, some of them at least. Um, but that's the point is it is that game changer. Again, we see it beginning in Jesus, of course. And I, here, I think you see Paul rightly interpreting that. It's just that it doesn't end on the note of he, you know, he killed all those nations, drove them out, what have you. Um, but no, God intends the good news to go out for the nations. And what do you know? What happens in Pisidian and Antioch? You get a great many of these nations who actually believe faster than some of God's own people, uh, meaning Israel in that sense. So Um, we see in this a narrative device by the author of Acts intended to communicate. We see Paul intending to communicate this idea of a greater sense of grace and a greater sense of mercy being extended out. Yeah, you know what? God blessed Israel and he took care of you guys. He took care of y'all, our ancestors. He took care of us by driving out those nations and by crushing them. What a blessing that was to us, but what a greater blessing of God's mercy going out. Would that be a fair way to, to, to restate that? Yeah. Yeah. So this would be more of like a literary device then. And, and the, to make that point, because as you pointed out, and I'll go ahead and read this, Mm um, you know, verse, uh, Verse 44 says, On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of God. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. Um, which is ironic because, as you point out, whoever's writing this, we'll just mm-hmm. assume it's Luke, You know, he's, he's basically showing the Jews were the ones who were filled with jealousy, and they begin to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse upon him. Mm-hmm. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, we, we had to speak the word of God to you first since you reject it. Do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. This gets back to what you're talking about. We now mm-hmm. turn to the Gentiles, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord and all who were appointed for eternal life. And then it says the the word of the Lord spread through the whole region and, and so on and so forth. And so it is interesting because um, this is this is a question, you know, I, I was the one who put these in here, but these are questions that I've had good conversations with with other people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and this is why I wanted to throw those in there because we did have some people ask, not directly to be answered, but you know, what, what, you know, just kind of, how do you, how do you, how do you address this? What do you do with this when Paul talks about it? And one of the points I make as well, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on is, is kind of the same point I made earlier about a lot of the text in the old Testament that most Christians today would say, yeah, yeah, that's not right. Even though, you know, it's just normative behavior and it's regulated, and yet Jesus never directly addresses it, and, and neither does Paul, and yet we're still willing to say it's not right. Um, even when he addressed some of those texts and stories, he never gave a negative commentary on what 
today, we would think, should have been given a negative commentary. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I believe the same is true in how this story was written, even with David, because, you know, you'll notice what all is said about David here is, you know, God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do, period, the end, no more commentary. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, the, he, he quoted to make his point just to, to note, okay, you know, this is David. Uh, everyone loves David. Everyone thinks David's this, this great guy. So I'm just going to play into that. But everyone, you know, we can, we can know what, who David really was, right? I mean, we, we like, there's, I think more sin recorded in the life of David, perhaps than any other person. I think there, that is the case, uh, as far as specifics are listed out, if you will. Um, you know, Paul was kind of arrogant and wanted to be the chief of all sinners. I'm like, no, nah, I think David, think David kicked your butt on that one, Paul. But, you know, it's one of those things where even though these things are listed, they're listed for, for a literary reason. And it's to prove the point. And the ultimate point in this text, as you pointed out, paradoxically and ironically, is that the, the gospel's for the Gentiles. So this this really isn't so much a... a and, and some of the uh, more conservative scholars point this out and say, oh, well, clearly Paul didn't think they had a problem with it. Well, whether he did or didn't, his ultimate point is that the Gentiles are part of God's kingdom. And it's to me... Correct me if I'm wrong. This parallels Romans chapter one, verse chapters one and th- through three, where Paul's kind of talking to the Jews. Uh, our first talk, starting with the Gentiles, you know, they're sinners. You know, we all know that. And then he's like, "But guess what? You know, you've sinned too." And then we've all sinned. It's kind of the reverse of that, but he's covering. It, it's it, to me, it's kind of that same idea of bringing in this narrative of, hey, we all know, yay, God was on our side, right? But now the word's spreading to the Gentiles. Well, we all know that the Gentiles were sinners, right? But hey, you were sinners too, and we're all sinners. And kind of leveling that playing field. Would that be correct to say? Yeah. I mean, and and especially, this is another reason why it's so difficult to read Paul, even when, you know, what you're talking about is a, um, uh, you know, Luke's representation of Paul. But it, it's spot on with his kind of language, his spirit. Um, I mean, this guy spoke in ancient Greek forms of logic, you know, rhetoric. Uh, he was well practiced in in good oratory, and uh, and you have to really slow down, not be looking for you know your own pet theories and and uh, justification for what you're expecting him to say, but you want to follow the details. Of, of his pattern that he's going through, you know, what's his argumentation really? Because it's not always self-evident, you know, like you like you're saying, if you begin Romans chapter one um, and if you stop early enough, you might think, Oh yeah, Paul's message is all those nations out there are sinners. They're terrible. Uh, but you need to read further, of course, because his whole point is gotcha, you know, <laughs> uh, to his own people. You know? He's making that point. That seems to be the point yeah. here in too. Acts. Yeah, yeah is yeah. that here's yes, here's the here's the the, the recorded history, mm-hmm. um, and and that can be another or historiography, should we say? And that that could be a different topic for another time. But you know, here you have that in Acts thirteen. And it's the Jews who get jealous. They get mad. Well, why would they be getting jealous of Paul talking about this narrative? Because he's he's bringing it all to a point. This is what you believed, and perhaps this is what Paul even still believed at that point, as you pointed out. Um, it wouldn't matter either way. It wouldn't affect the ultimate point that that in Jesus, though, 
the Joshua point 2.0, as you call it, now the Gentiles are accepted into the kingdom. Now, you know, this, this is, this is what it's all about. It's, it's that, it's that inclusivity again. It's the, did you not get what I was saying? Did you not understand what I'm talking? You know, it's, it's that same idea uh, to me, at least, that's 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 how I understand Acts yeah. thirteen. Well, and of course, in that that context, uh, toward the end of Acts thirteen, um, you know, they 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 quote from the prophet, right? You know, the, uh, trying to point out is like it's not like this has been hidden, yeah. Uh, but in the scriptures as well, God's bigger agenda. Uh, you know, I have made you a light to the nations, um, in in order to for you to become salvation to the ends of the earth, um. Well, and the, and the Jewish and the Jewish leaders were upset. Yeah, yeah, right. Because this isn't no, this isn't what it's supposed to be like. Why are you doing the same reason they were upset at Jesus? Quit including people who's supposed to be excluded. Don't you know better? He's almost using their own logic and argument against them to say, okay, you know, Paul likes to become all things to all people, and so yeah, remember this, remember this, remember this. Boom. <laughs> well, this this brings us, I mean, perfectly back around to the holiness of God. You know, how do we know if we're if we're staying open to the holiness of God, except to say you've got to take it when it's comfortable and uncomfortable? Yeah. Um. And and the comfortable part and the partisan line, the co-opting of God. You know, God just for us, our party, is the kind where you stop short. Uh, with the message, for example, Exodus nineteen. You know, you shall be my treasured possession. Uh, among all the nations, right? Um, and you shall be a kingdom of priests, and and that kind of language, of course, on the on the part of Israel, that feels really good to hear that language. You know, Ooh, yeah, God, Yahweh, the God who chose us, made us special over all the other nations, and we're His little treasure box, and He, you know, keeps us secretly over here, um, uh, and you know, forget all the other nations. In fact, I mean, that's that's the sense of goyim, you know, and and Gentiles uh, just as a lump, like the nations, as if Israel itself is not a nation. But think about what that does. It creates that dichotomy. You know, we're here. We're a special case. You, you might not even call us nation. You know, this is Israel. This is God's people. And then, you know, the clump of nations. Um, and But like I said, everybody does this in our own ways. But... Uh, I love the example, and oddly enough, this comes from the book of Joshua. Um, <laughs> but a holy God is the kind that, you know, in, in that famous scene where um, he meets the commander of Yahweh's armies uh, at the end of chapter 5, right? And um, the famous line, and I mean, the Hebrew text, text admittedly is, is a little strange here. And some of us do wonder if um, there have been some scribal errors in transmission. But it's still, I like the idea of the mystery that seems to be present, perhaps intentionally, when, you know, uh, Joshua's lying to the man when he sees him with his sword drawn, right? The natural question is, oh, uh, are you for us or for our enemies? <laughs> and uh, and here's the part where the text gets a little strange, maybe corrupted, or maybe maybe it is intentional, just as is. And he, and he said to him, no. <laughs> <You know? laughs> That's basically how the Hebrew text reads, lo, which is the Hebrew for no. <laughs> and you know, and I love at least the potentiality that that is meant to be exactly as received. Um, you know, it's too easy to think, all right, God's on our side; He's going to fight, you know, with our troops over here, um, and of course, fight against those guys. But what if the answer, the divine answer, comes back 
neither. It's not that simple. Um, I'm reminded of, um, I mean, using somebody else's tradition because we ought to do this. It fits the spirit. But um, uh, in the Bhagavad Gita, um, which is um, a part of the the larger, much larger um, uh, Indian uh, epic, the, the Mahabharata, uh, you have um, you have the hero of the piece, Arjun, who is, I mean, he's this archetypal king-like figure. You know, he's he's going to inherit sovereignty, uh, but in this convoluted epic of of um, fighting, you know, family against family. Um, I mean, it's a civil war, you know, that, that takes place in that. And in the Bhagavad Gita, it's itself a long uh, text, which makes up a part of this much larger one. Um, he has this uh, private conversation with Krishna, uh, who is understood as, as being the, the avatar, the, the incarnation um, of, of the god Vishnu, um, who is a savior kind of deity and a sustainer, um, a friend to humanity, in other words. Uh, but in in the person of Krishna, you know, he he looks human enough, uh, and so Arjun has gotten accustomed to this this one who is really divine, but in a relatable human sort of face. Um, and partway through this dialogue between the two, where Arjun is just spilling his guts to this friend of his about how worried he is to step into battle, not wanting to shed so much blood, especially knowing that it's again he's he's fighting family. Um, and he doesn't want that heavy burden, uh, upon him of being not only a soldier, but a, a commander of many who will die under his leadership. Um, and, uh, in the extended talk, Krishna ends up telling him, we all, we all have our duties to fulfill. We all go to death eventually anyway, <laughs> as part of the cycles. Um, but the point I want to land on here is at a certain moment to give Arjun an additional shot in the arm. Uh, Krishna reveals his nature as Vishnu, as this, you know, much bigger divine holy being. And as such, I mean, the, the text is so descriptive and it is both horrifying and beautiful at the same time. There's that idea of the holy, right? Yeah. Um, and I don't know if you guys have, have read portions of this, if this sounds familiar, but I have not, but you're making me really interested in it. Yeah. So, so. <laughs> go out and read, you know, it's boy, or, or at least read a summary. Um, but uh, in this, more fully revealed form, uh, Arjun all of a sudden sees all these gods in this one entity, uh, just folding in on each other. I mean, it, it, it almost gets like you know, something that should be done in CGI or whatever, but, uh, and, and yet that can't even capture it. And, and he opens his mini divine mouths, uh, and Arjun sees in this vision sort of state, he sees both armies just being sucked into the maw of this God, uh, to their doom. And, and he just falls on his knees and says, this is too much for me to handle. And then before long, um, uh, uh, Vishnu is back to being Krishna, uh, in a more relatable guise. But, um, the point in that scene in part is, you know, you're right. It, it's, it's a burden to bear to have to go forth and fight like this. Um, but, it's, it's also the reminder, you know, the same deity who might be charging you to go and, and fight these other people. He swallows both armies alike, you know, <laughs> uh, he is the abyss. And, and, uh, so it's a fearsome scene, but it's a reminder of how small we and our party politics are in the larger scope of things. And so, um, 
it comes back around to that. This is what Paul recognized, which is why I say he really did get Jesus's message and change of ethic. Otherwise, you'd imagine Paul would be out there, you know, slashing Gentile throats and <laughs> going out there and attacking. But no, he he goes forth to love them uh, and to treat them as brothers and sisters, which was inconceivable for many of his fellow kinsmen, you know, people of his nation. Uh, but he was very intent on being open armed and recognizing that things had changed, uh, and 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 yet all along that God had intended for this light to go forth to all the nations so that all of them could benefit. Well, and to me, Paul's actions in doing so, in carrying the gospel to the Gentile nations, because he is the apostle that is called to the Gentiles, mm -hmm. that demonstrates, just like you said and put it so wonderfully, that he did understand that love ethic that Jesus espoused. And with that in mind, under really no circumstances, can we really consider Acts 13 and Paul's discourse there in Pisidia Antioch to be a recantation of, he's not recanting what Jesus said. He's not undoing or demonstrating a lack of understanding. He's using no. that as part of the story to, to tell the story of God and how God relates to people. That at that point, from the Israelite perspective, that would be how God related to them and how they would relate to God, but God's net is cast far wider than it ever had been before. But, yeah. but even with that, Kevin, do you have anything you want to add to that? Well, I was going to say this, I, I think Acts 13 could almost serve as a polemic of sorts of the story of, of these war stories versus the acceptance. I mean, I, I in, in what would seem like a, oh, this is an argument that's really, really going to, you know, show Dr. Testu he's wrong. Um, in my opinion, this is actually evidence that Paul is addressing this, and while perhaps not reversing it to the same extent Jesus did, he's using it to say this is the way it was, but through Jesus, now the Gentiles are part of the kingdom. Now, if, I think if Paul wouldn't have not talked about the Gentiles, if Luke would have not recorded that, um, about how, you know, the, the Jews rejected, but yet the Gentiles accepted. I actually think this is like a polemic, like just as you, um, you know, were going out and you thought that you were God's chosen people. And even if Paul did believe that this is the case, I mean, it, I don't think it matters. I don't think it matters what Paul thought happened at that time. His point is, is that the Gentiles are part of God's kingdom. And that this is revealed through Jesus. This is the message that I'm teaching. And it was the Jews that were upset. I mean, if Paul was going back and going, hey, remember when we got them? They wouldn't have been upset. They were upset because Paul was alluding to their history. And then in essence, I mean, it's to me, once again, I always say correct me if I'm wrong when I've got uh, somebody of your caliber on our program. I, I don't say this to everybody because, you know, I don't. I don't want to. I only want to be corrected by uh, by people like yourself. You know, I don't want to be embarrassed, and I'm not embarrassed if somebody like you corrects me. <laughs> now I'm just messing with you. But um, you know, the the point that I think Paul is making here is he is showing that that this is what you thought you were supposed to do, or this is what you did, and yet now we are we are to accept them into the kingdom. And the reason why they got so upset is because. Paul wasn't giving this message. I mean, to me, it, this is what I'm saying, correct me if I'd be wrong, it would be almost like today, 
me giving the history of America and talking about slavery and racism. I mean, it is what it is. But then I go into talking about how, you know, hey, this is what we did as the church, and this is what we thought we were supposed to do. Godly man commanded this, and we thought, you know, and the, the scriptures talk about slavery, and God commanded, and all this, and, and we're kind of bringing all that in, and then we say, but we're free, we're all equal, and, and you know, kind of just showing this polemic with what was, which is what is. Now, if Paul would have ended by saying, remember when we did that? God's a great God. Ha, huh, we're powerful. Period. Sure. We would we would really be having a different discussion right now. But the fact that he continues his message the, the following day, I believe the text says, and uh the Gentiles accept it and received it, and the Jews, the leaders were the ones, these elitist, you know, Jews were the ones who rejected it because his message went against that narrative of destroy, destroy. And, and, and instead it's accept them into they're a part of the kingdom. Yeah, or at least it, because it, it stopped uh, privileging their group. Yes, yeah. And and so, you know, to really understand that well, you want to uh, stop not just with Acts 13, of course, but look at uh, the, the whole gospel according to Luke and Acts, the sequel, uh, and uh, notice how early nations are mentioned very early in the infancy. Yeah. Uh, which is fascinating. Of course, you know, we, we mentioned a moment ago, Matthew is the most Jewish sounding of the Gospels, um, uh, partly because he doesn't have to explain all the Jewish insider's knowledge. Um, Luke uh, comes comes out sounding like uh, the most cosmopolitan, you know, right? uh, just uh, aware of the nations in general uh, and a very universal sort of perspective. Um, and so... You've got to you've got to imagine any time nations comes up, even when it's a reference in passing like that to Joshua, is that oh, but it's no mistake that he's talking nations, nations, nations. But the trick is uh, that's that's a translation trick because uh, not all translations treat that term consistently. I don't even like Gentile because it's uh, it's so specialized, it's weird. You know, it's a Latin term. Yeah. Um, and it's just Latin for for nations. What do you know? Um. So if it were more consistent, it would stand out even more, you know. Oh, yeah, God drove out the nations for his people, his privileged ones. And and now who accepts the good news from the same God? Oh, the nations do. <laughs> Ooh, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, the point in part there in, in chapter th- 13 and elsewhere, um, especially toward the end of Acts in, in Paul's defense as he stands trial is, hey, I've not parted ways with the traditions of my ancestors. I'm still a Jew. And, you know, this is not just some sect that I'm following. Uh, I'm, I am very serious about following uh, all those traditions that I was raised in. Um, and, of course, the part of the point, too, is, hey, I gave, I gave my fellow kinsmen every chance I could. I went to them first with this message, uh, but some of them rejected it. And I can't help it if these other nations <laughs> like the message and they're on board with it. Yeah. 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 Well, so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think you did a great job. It was a phenomenal question. Um, I mean, whoever asked yeah, that, whoever. once again, I, me is just a great, Standing great question. Low, yeah. you, you always know it's me when there's the three, when, there, when there's like at least two to five or four of them in it. there. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so we'll kind of go with this last question here. Um, mm-hmm. This one does somewhat coincide with my question, so it it's you know some of this will probably fall under the same 
um, kind of categorical way you answered the the Acts 13. But this one says, um, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 30 mentions the walls of Jericho. This is within the context of a genocide, and it is portrayed as an act of faith on behalf of the Israelites. What are your thoughts on this passage? Okay, yeah. So this is yet another author. Um, uh, we don't know who exactly, but the style is definitely not Paul. Um, so we, we first of all want to recognize that this is somebody with a slightly different take on, on the same, you know, the gospel of Christ. Um, so all that is to say we don't necessarily have to rec- reconcile it with what we've talked about elsewhere in the Gospels and in Paul's writings. Um, now, yeah, regarding that chapter, of course, I don't need to tell anybody, you know, uh, this is the chapter of faith. So the major point here altogether is, um, you know, think of all these these greats of faith who are now our witnesses looking to see what we will choose to do. We will also step forth uh, and act in faith when pressed by hard circumstances or not. That's the that's the author's major point in that chapter. It fits into a larger scope of what he's trying to do uh, in the letter as a whole. Um, and so, you know, when dealing with him mentioning Jericho, of course, you know, he doesn't get into uh, uh, the the slaughter that happened at Jericho. It's more about the the walls falling. So it's the big point he's making there is again God does the impossible, uh, and it's it's upon us to put forth the faith, uh, and that's largely what you see in all the other examples that come out in the famous you know hall of hall of faith. There, mm-hmm. um, I will say at the same time, um, it is rather odd that uh, I think, well, you know, the very next verse uh, the author references Rahab. Um, which, you know, she lived at, at Jericho. Um, so that's kind of interesting. Uh, <laughs> yeah, especially right after. <laughs> yeah. Also calling yeah. her a prostitute, just making it clear in case anybody had forgotten. Um, but, <laughs> you know, that's, that's an exceptional case in the book of Joshua, which again teaches me that maybe there's some subtlety to the book that does not make it monolithic either. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that Joshua... The party line tends to be, yeah, kill all the Canaanites, spare nobody except Rahab and you know, some other <laughs> and some Gibeonites. And, you know. um, so it's interesting, these exceptional cases, and we just were supposed to be OK with that. And that doesn't seem to line up with Deuteronomy, but hey, we let him in. <laughs> um, and, so, and so Rahab is lauded for her faith in the same uh, in the same chapter in the very next verse. Um, which is kind of an interesting statement to make, you know, by faith, you know, Jericho's walls fell and by faith, Rahab was spared. You know, she, she and her family survived. Um, that's kind of interesting that, that two sides of the coin, precisely because she was one of those spared, there were few. Um, but then at the same time, the author's motives are not always clear because he, by the end of it all, he says, you know, I don't even have enough time to get into. And he, he mentions um, uh, Jephthah, Samson gets in there, Barak. Barak is about one of the better ones. But but Jephthah and Samson are uh, not yeah. very exemplar yeah. conduct, at least. Um, you know, so we're supposed to, is that, is that you know, advocating killing your daughter? Um, you know, what's what does that mean? Um 
But because he doesn't get into his meaning, we're left to wonder, you know, why why choose those as examples of faith? And so we just fall back on, well, I guess Jephthah did have great faith that Yahweh would help him defeat the Ammonites. And I guess Samson had faith that Yahweh would make the uh, the temple of, of Dagon fall down on all the Philistines. But yeah, no mention of Deborah, you know, no mention of her as a judge. Yeah, yeah. Uh, pro- you know, <laughs> that's uh, that, that's reflective of the society, I'm sure. Could be, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're left to wonder about some of those, but yeah, yeah, that one doesn't stand out as much. Yeah, there's there's a lot of others, you know, that could have been chosen. Um, so many more, you know. Yeah, that you're right. I've never thought of it that way. There's just so many, the ones that were chosen. You're like, really? I mean, out of every everybody we read about, like, you know, yeah, yeah. Is, those are the ones we're gonna go with. <laughs> yeah, Samson, you couldn't. No better candidates. I mean, in the whole Hebrew Bible. <laughs> <laughs> Surely oh, well. there's someone else. Oh well. Oh, well. <laughs> no, I, I think that gets yeah. to it, though. I mean, this is a matter of of faith and staying the course in the midst of extreme adversity, and that's the mm-hmm. central message there. It's yeah. not a matter of justifying this or that or whatever else. Well, in much the same way that we use Joshua still to this day in our young children's Sunday school classes sometimes. But we stop, of course, with the walls falling down. And I mean, I hope we do. You know, (laughs) if you tell the story at all to children, please don't tell them about the bloody slaughter of all of these. (laughs) They run screaming and crying out of the classroom. I killed everybody. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Why are you so upset? Because of the story of Joshua. He's not going to kill me. Yeah. Ever since we had that story of Joshua in Sunday school, we have to leave the the hall light on for whatever reason. Just terrifies (laughs) the kids. Yeah. Uh, It's like, I don't know. I don't know what's happening. They're like running around with spears and stuff now. And and I think that... it's important to go back to the first episode if you're if you're listening to this um, again because we discussed different views of how to take those texts and one of those views is that these events never actually happened and they were just part of the story that was told and so you know there's that this may have not even occurred and if it did it it probably did not occur the way it was written but maybe more of like an enmeshment of fact and fiction which is how they told their stories a lot of times. It's not like today uh, when we talk about history or when we talk about what happened in the past. And so if that's the case, these could have just been those stories. And I'm, I'm oversimplifying it by saying, you know, our God is more powerful than your God. Uh, you know, my dad is more powerful than your dad or my dad's more powerful than your dad because, you know, my dad can bench, you know, a hundred million pounds or something like that, you know, and we kind of get into these stories to show how powerful our God is and the people who are with us, our people are. And if that's the case, if these were written, uh, you know, years and years later, just to establish God is with us, then in that case, these stories would have not been taken to mean that these things uh, even literally happened, but that these are just stories that everyone knows to show God was quote unquote with us. And this is the powerful God that we serve. And then there's other understandings. I'm just throwing out one explanation. I know, I know Pete ends um, tends to lead toward that view. And there's, there's scholars who look at that differently, but the point being is that, you know, whether it's Acts 13 or whether it's Hebrews, none of them are actually advocating violence because of those texts. They're simply pointing out the fact that, that there was faith 
oh well with the story of Hebrews 11 there's there's you know this is just a faith story but then also and, and I never have thought of that what you pointed out it doesn't even get into the details it just t- simply talks about the walls falling and that's it which you know I mean I don't want to make too much out of that but the point is is that he's just making this as a side point and when you look at Acts 13 as you you know so eloquently did you explained why that that's not Paul in any way saying, ah, look at what we did. If anything, he's showing this is where it was. This is where it is now. And kind of this trajectory and this progression of, of what was and what is. And uh, that makes a lot of people upset when you start, start talking about inclusion. That makes a lot of people uh, upset when you're, when you believe that your whole ideology and religion has been built on exclusion. The idea of inclusion is very difficult. So to pull that in, to then end up, you know, to pull that in about ex- exclusion and conquering and then bring it back to, but no, no, we're going to teach the Gentiles and the Gentiles are accepted in the kingdom. We're to love the Gentiles too. Um, I think you did a phenomenal job, man. I learned a lot of stuff tonight that I had never heard. And this is great, man. I, I think this is going to benefit our audience tremendously. I mean, this is just fantastic. Well, and that's one of the reasons I love Grant Testu. That's one of the reasons I love having you on, brother, because I always learn a ton when you're on here you almost make me want to move up to oklahoma city and enroll in your class i I mean it's this is this is phenomenal this has been great and before we sign off and before we wrap this up uh dr testu do you have anything that you want to add to the conversation any final parting thoughts that you'd like to share with kevin and i and share with our audience um you know just uh primarily not to ignore a part of an earlier question that I think we've come back to now organically. Um, And it was, it was the first question um, uh, toward the end. uh, This person brought up Romans 11, 22 speaks to the kindness and severity of God. Um, And this was brought up in that context of, you know, so what do we do with uh, these war texts that seem to be, uh, part and parcel of, of the mysteries of a holy God, right? Um, and, you know, I, I took a look even back at that, that text because, I mean, it's right. There, there again is the mystery of a God that we can't wrestle down to our terms um, and, and our ethic, God will slip out of our fingers um, if we even try that. Nevertheless, uh, I wanted to look more at that that specific text, and what's fascinating there in um, in that chapter in Romans eleven, where it does say, you know, uh, observe the 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 kindness and the severity of God. Um, that if you take in the scope of the larger section there, even the severity of God in that text, um, uh, Paul is pointing out is temporary. Um, Mm. so, you know, uh, if anybody's interested, go back and look at, at Romans 11, which famously does have that line, you know, uh, behold the, the kindness and severity of God. But when it talks about the severity and, and it's in the context of talking about, uh, Paul's fellow Jews, at least those who have not accepted Christ, um, and his comparison uh, of them as natural branches who have been cut off. Right. Uh, and that's a severe image cutting off, um, but the whole point he's making in the larger section is, uh, and, you know, you and your listeners may remember, you know, the, when they stumbled, talking again about his fellow Jews who have not yet believed in Jesus, 
um, you know, did they stumble so as to fall? And he says, may it not be so. Absolutely not. Um, and what he gets around to, especially as he, he draws to a close that, that whole section of chapters 9 through 11, which has all been about, you know, so what about your own people, Paul, the, you know, the, those Jews who have not um, put their trust in this Jesus as, as the Lord's anointed? Um, and what he gets around to for now the Gentiles, who he's mm. spoken of very favorable through, <laughs> favorably about through all the rest of Romans, what the fascinating thing in that final section he wraps up is essentially, you know, you Gentiles, now that you know that you're in by the grace of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ, isn't that great? Would it be too outlandish for this same, uh, let's use the term ourselves at least, this holy God, to save all of Israel um, because of his grace through the promises to their fathers? Are you going to deny God who did this amazing act of bringing salvation to you all, lost as you all were, um, through the gospel, which itself was a venue of grace? Can't, you know, can, are you, are you going to be too hard-hearted now to uh, you know, to deny Israel to come back into that community uh, by virtue of God's grace expressed through this time through the vehicle of His promises to the ancestors, and it's a wild thing that He's doing there. Uh, which, if you hear it in in the fullness of that whole conversation, that's Paul uh, again just being very subtle in his logic, but but saying. You can't pin this God down. <laughs> you know, he yeah. surprised us all by what he did, opening a pathway to graft on these unnatural branches, right, on onto the, the natural olive tree um, of his people, meaning, you know, bringing the Gentiles in. What if he's going to still surprise us with those that we thought were lost, you know, lost hope, lost cause, uh, and... Uh, you know, at the last hour, the eleventh hour, he pulls a hail mary. <laughs> he brings them in somehow. Um, uh, funny that I should use that term, but anyway. <laughs> all to say, what if God still? Are you Catholic? Are you Catholic? Have you converted to uh, Roman Catholicism? I, I don't know. You know. <laughs> but uh, in the sense of, uh, yeah, a holy God cannot be pinned down by our partisan interests. Uh, and you know, that's Paul, that's Paul's way of saying, and so what if he brings the, you know, many of those Jews that you've started perhaps even to think of as enemies of God, what if he brings them back in? Cause he loves them too. Uh, so he gets the message of Christ that this is for everybody. And, uh, yeah, maybe God doesn't want to cause people to stumble and fall and be slaughtered en masse. And yeah. Well, Ro Romans 11, um, really the whole book of Romans, but starting with Romans 5, particularly for me anyway, in my studies. Um, but th this this whole part had been taken out of context um, in, in my earlier life. I mean, I knew, knew what it said, but I knew what it said in piecemeal. Um, you know, I knew what it said when I had just taken these random verses and, you know, this is one of those, those passages where you know, I, I'm now, I, I'm a Christian universalist at this point. Um, we'll, we'll talk about this another time, Lee, mm -hmm. but, um, you know, Romans, Romans is, is like the, the book, man. I mean, it's, I think there's other passages and text as well, but when you look at the whole point, 
mean, he concludes by saying, for God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on all. And earlier he made the point that just through Adam, you know, is, is all have sinned, so all will be saved through Jesus Christ. I mean, and then what's interesting in Romans 11 is he goes on to talk about the riches the of 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 God and how they're unknown. And it's like, yeah. well, what? What's going on? Right after God said he's going to have mercy on everybody. And so that's such a powerful point because even though that passage is there in Romans 11, it, that's not where it ends. He 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 go he goes on to talk about how God will end up having mercy. You know, he's basically confined everybody to disobedience. He's he's confined everybody to sin, so that he may have mercy upon them all. And wherever God, uh, wherever uh, humankind has sinned, God's grace surpasses that. You cannot outsin God's grace. And I mean, these are some powerful, powerful concepts uh, that are being discussed here. And I don't want to get too far off into those ideas, um, but. The point is, is when you see someone quote a verse like this, Acts 13, Hebrews 11, Romans 11, and you see people look, you know, just just saying, well, what about this verse? What about this verse? We all talk about it, right? You got to look at the context, but we fail to do so in so many ways. We, we fail to really know the greater context um, because we already think we know what the context is. That was my problem. A lot of times I would quote these passages and I was the one who always, you know, would say things like, you know, a text without context is a proof text and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, it's, it's our pretext. And, you know, I would, I would say all these things, but I really wouldn't truly have understood the, or didn't understand the context at that time uh, because I thought I already knew what it said. And then I get a little bit deeper and realize, wow, I, I didn't know what was going on here. And so you pointed out another important factor when studying that is keep reading, you know, keep reading. You've said that a lot of times and you see a verse, what's going on here? Well, keep reading. When Paul talks about the genocide, so what's he talking about? And he's, 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 he's contrasting with the way now that the Gentiles are part of the kingdom. Keep reading, keep reading. Yeah. And it's important uh, in our relationships with each other face to face or face to text, which is also a relationship, right? You're make, you're entering a relationship with the author, even if distantly. Um, but in on all sorts of circumstances, just to be open and and stop with our labels, you know, stop. It, and it's hard to break ourselves of that habit. Which yes. Is why that's a lifelong process. I'm still trying to learn. Uh, but slowing down in the moment throwing the labels away because uh, the labels mean I'm not looking you in the eyes. It means uh, I owe uh, Chris Rosser. I think he's been, he's been on your podcast. Mm-hmm. Hasn't he? Yeah. Yes. Um, but I owe him for this great illustration. He brought up one time of, uh, you know, if you label somebody like, you know, liberal or conservative or what have you um, in your mind, then it's, it's like you have slapped a post-it note on their face, covering their eyes. And that's what you're looking at. Mm-hmm. Um, that's powerful. What it means. Yeah. Isn't that powerful? I love that illustration because what it means is I've decided no longer to really hear you, but to filter anything, any sounds that might come from you into my, my image of what I know you already are. And, and of course I will always confirm what, what that, uh, yeah, yeah. I'll always confirm my expectations of you. That's right. Yeah. Um, but, uh, if, if you, if we are open to each other, we will continually be learning that you can do that with your enemies even, uh, and, and come out with a great reward for that. Um, a human moment. And that, and, that, and we that need like so much gospel. of that. 
absolutely. We need more of that. We need more humanity. We need more human interaction. And we need to see not just the humanity in each other, but we need to see the divinity in each other. We need to see the the image of God present within one another. And whenever we see that, we're going to be much less likely to try to either literally or metaphorically rip each other's throats out whenever we disagree. Mm Mm-hmm. And I, I think that conversations like this can go a long way towards that. I mean, hopefully this is going to be something that, and I really think it will benefit our audience. I mean, the fact that, you know, our genocide episode that we did before this one is one of, like Kevin said, it's one of our most popular episodes. We've had more listens on that. It's in our top five. Mm. And it, it was very, very popular. And I think this one will largely hopefully serve the same function that it can give people a way that they can, I guess, make sense of these passages that can be problematic for so many people. And it can help people make better sense of the scriptures and lead to better, deeper conversations with their brothers and sisters in Christ to have better conversations with, with one another and with the text itself. So Um, Grant, once again, I I just want to say thank you so much, man. We appreciate you so much. I appreciate you so much. Your willingness to come on our little program and spend hours discussing these ideas. I'm a nerd for it. I know Kevin's a nerd for it. We love this stuff. This is your career. And you have said that you enjoy having these conversations. And brother, I'm glad you do because... I always get a lot out of having you on and I appreciate it so much. So yeah, this, thank this you. is, thank this you, was thank great. You. This was great, man. I, uh, you, every time, every time you open your mouth, I learn something. And so we're going to have to, I do want to have you come back on to talk about holiness and do, do more of a deep dive on that. Cause hmm. you've, you've piqued my curiosity. And now I've got another book to read and Hey, I've got the time for it. So I'm, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. A short one. it's a short one. It's good. Well, I already ordered that that book that you were discussing, and now I've I've gone completely blank on who it was. Otto, I think it was. Yeah, Rudolph Otto. Yeah, yeah. Rudolph Otto. I've mm-hmm. ordered that book. It's on the way. It'll be here Wednesday. So another one for me to dig into once I finish uh, reading through Kevin's book again in paperback form. Yeah, all right. So, so thank you once again, brother. We appreciate you. And to our audience, we appreciate you guys as well. If you want to pick up a copy of Kevin's book, it's available now on uh, Amazon. You can pick it up on Kindle, Kindle Unlimited, or paperback. That is the preferred I, way to read it. It's formatted the best way in paperback. Kevin, go ahead. I was going to say, and uh, and Doctor Testu is quoted a couple times in there. So um, you know where I, where I'm addressing inspiration and how we understand scripture. And uh, I even I, I don't really you know I do get into the um, you know, just the way in which many of the elitist Jews, at least, you know, understood their enemies and how I believe Jesus reverses that. So I get into some of that as well. But I appreciate I, I appreciate you for pointing me into good to to really good resources um, while I was studying that a while back too. Yeah, well, I love you guys and I love what you do. Well, it's thank good, you very much, ma'am. Yeah. Well, we love you too. And without you and without guests like you, this wouldn't be what it is. So thank you for your contributions to our podcast. And brother, we look forward to having you back on uh, to our audience. If you have any other questions about what we talked about here, I can't promise we'll do another episode on genocides. But if you have any other questions covered, about yeah. I feel like we've covered it. And then just, yeah, just, we, just go ahead and 
contact Dr. Testo. He'll he'll talk to yeah. you some more. Contact him directly. But in any case, if you have any questions about anything else that we touched on, um, feel free to email us. If you have any other questions in general, comments for Kevin and I, we love hearing from you guys. There are times where Kevin and I get busy. And I know there have been times where I have become, I guess, somewhat discouraged in this podcast and in doing it. And I've wondered, man, why do I take so much time out of my week to do this? Why do I? And then we hear from you guys and we see the difference that this work is making in people's lives in a very real way. And that's hugely encouraging to Kevin. It's hugely encouraging to me. And we want to keep hearing from you guys about that. So please drop us a line. Um, give us that five-star review on iTunes. That helps us a ton. That helps us get in front of more people. Give Kevin that five-star review on his book. It's wonderful. And you need to get a copy and read it. So order it, read it, enjoy it. And we pray that you keep enjoying our podcast. So thank you all very much. And we bid you all a good night.